In this episode, I'm once again joined by Dr. Ben Joffe, anthropologist and scholar practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism. In this interview, Ben takes us on a deep dive into the theory, practice, and scholarship of coitus reservatus as a tantric religious practice. Ben compares these practices within various Buddhist lineages, as well as exploring the similarities and differences between Shaiva Tantra, Western occultism, and modern neo-tantric approaches. Ben also discusses the various applications of this practice, including spiritual, medical, and magical, how to choose a consort, and draws on religious texts to discuss previously secret catheter practices. So without further ado, Dr. Ben Joffe. Dr. Ben Joffe, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. The last time we spoke on the podcast, and we've had several interviews, which I encourage listeners to check out all of them. They're really fascinating. Uh, you were in Colorado, but now you're back in Cape Town and doing very interesting work with your spiritual teacher and colleague, Dr. Nita Chanat Sang. So I'm curious if you could just give us a little update. How's it being back in South Africa and what are you up to professionally? Yeah, so coming back to South Africa was a sort of last minute decision in the midst of the of the chaos and uncertainty of, you know, uh, the build up to the election, uh, the pandemic, uh, being fresh out of a PhD as an immigrant with seemingly endless visa problems in the US. I kind of reached a point where I thought, well, um, this is a bit too much like swimming upstream and I've accomplished the thing I intended to do. I'd wanted to stay in the US after the PhD if possible, but it wasn't really. So I came back home and I'm now very happy to be here. Uh, also still largely staying indoors. Uh, and one of the opportunities of that has been uh, all of these online activities, and we were talking a bit earlier about this efflorescence of, of Dharma teachings online. And when the pandemic started, uh, I helped uh, Dr. Nida and other colleagues start um, various online activities and classes under the banner of this uh, Soarigpa Institute. So in addition to working for our publishing company, Skypress Books, and doing translations and editing when necessary, we now have a kind of educational wing. And um, pretty much right around the start of the pandemic is when we began. And so we've been doing a number of different courses taught by Dr. Nida, but also many other excellent teachers. Uh, and we kind of divide our time teaching classes uh, focused on so Rigpa, Tibetan traditional medicine, uh, and, you know, in an English medium, uh, primarily, but also we're offering Tibetan language instruction soon, um, electives on astrology, uh, Tibetan yoga practices. We have a, a kind of a four-year track for students who want to kind of learn Tsarigpa in a more traditional way, cover all the same kinds of traditional materials and training as much as possible online and then through in-person uh, uh, supervised visits. Once the pandemic settles down, we'll be able to organize that more. So, um, and then we have other classes that are, are, are more geared towards people just with an interest who might not want to professionalize in the same way. Uh, also focused on uh, forms of Tibetan yoga and uh, lifestyle and health related things and then classes to do with the Yutok Nyintek, uh, this 
unique lineage of highest yoga tantra practices specifically associated with Tibetan medicine and uh, the medicine Buddha who, who we've, we've chatted about this before. Um, so as of tomorrow, I'll be teaching a class uh, um, which is a kind of line by line, syllable by syllable study group where we'll be talking about the mundro or uh, preliminary practices uh, as they're taught in the Yutuk Nyintik. So there's a specific uh, a set of preliminaries and a specific way of practicing them in, in this Vajrayana tradition. And I thought it would be cool if I could sort of take students on a journey through my own process as an anthropologist and a translator, kind of all the context and history and connotations and implications that, you know, I try to digest and think about in producing a translation of even just a seemingly standard four-line prayer. Uh, so we'll really take a deep dive. You know, we'll spend like two hours on, on one prayer potentially or longer. And my hope is that even if students don't know Tibetan, by the end of it, I can facilitate them becoming translators of these prayers when they use them in Tibetan or in some translation. We'll consider alternative translations and look at, at, at many things. Um, I'm a pretty tangential, detail-oriented person, but it's, it's always towards a kind of synthesis and a, a deepening understanding. So I hope I can gift that to, to students who enroll have enrolled in the class um, and uh, yeah that it can empower their practice. I think that's such an exciting course because of your unique uh, or your particular set of skills and trainings both in Tibetan language as an anthropologist and an academic but also working as you are now in this job which I think would be the envy of many Buddhist studies graduates. You're working closely with Dr. Nida Chanatsang, Lineage Holder, in a very creative way, producing translations, courses in a very open way. This, I think, melting pot of experience and training that you're really in the, in the, in the midst of makes this a particularly interesting course. And I was going to ask about that. It seems to be that uh, quite a lot of these mundros and these highest yoga tantras, of course, they're very different and unique in their own ways, but there are certain stock or uh, similarities between them, so that even if one perhaps wasn't a Utognintic practitioner, this sort of a course might give them a deeper insight into sadhana in general, and therefore be useful, even for, I think, academics, perhaps, religious practitioners, maybe even linguists or people with an enthusiasm in that level. Would you say it's pitched at all those levels? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, obviously, while it's focused on, Utognintic does have certain unique features, but they're, they can largely be found scattered around in different lineages and traditions as well. And so definitely would uh, have value on, on, on all, the, all the levels you describe. I actually wish, I was just talking to a colleague uh, the other day, also an anthropologist who works in Tibetan, has uh, written incredibly beautiful work on uh, lay women's uh, engagement with Mundra practices like prostration, um, uh, Katie Fitzgerald. And uh, we, were, we were just talking back and forth about our thoughts and reflections about Mundra as a, as a genre and, and the history of it too, you know. It, it's how it's come to take on particular meanings, how it may have developed. There are a few people working on this, but 
we don't really actually have much scholarly work on Ngundro. It's so known for practitioners, so prevalent, even to the point of creating paranoia and you know tension. But it's it's not something that's been sort of studied in its own right, more from a kind of meta level. Yeah. So what you're describing may actually facilitate that in its own way. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I have a little bit of that in, in my early slides for the course, talking about Ngundra kind of as, as its own concept. But uh, in preparing uh, those classes, I realized there was so much more I didn't know and wanted to know and, and discuss. So I hope that more, you know, I think often with preliminary practices, <clears throat> people receive instruction on how to do the practice and the significance on the practice. But then when it comes down to you and your meditation cushion or your retreat uh, hut, you're sort of handed, the, you're given the, the reading transmission and you're handed the liturgy. And it's, uh, if you don't know Tibetan, then you know, you, you're reliant on translations and you, you just, you have to say the prayer and try to connect it with any teachings you may have received. So I think there is a kind of intermediary zone between receiving Dharma teachings on these practices and, and the path, uh, studying Tibetan language as, as its own exercise, and then something in the middle. So like you said, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm trying to hold, bring everyone together in the middle of that. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's anthropology. And, uh, but yeah, I want people to think more about how they're relating to these practices, sort of both as a way of studying Tibetan and Dharma and as a way of studying themselves and their own mind and, and their own acts of translation that as, as either you know, native heritage Buddhists or convert Buddhists, they're having to do all the time because the Yutok Nyantik is a 12th century text. It's just as vital today as it was then, but we all every moment have to translate these practices into our embodied experience. In a way, that's what doing them, you could argue, is folding them into who we actually are in reality as we move through the world. So that sounds very, very lofty, um, <laughs> uh, but I'm just happy to be able to do this kind of thing. It's, it's, I'm psyched. I'm, as is, I'm just happy to be here. And it will be great to have students that I know and don't know to just participate in that and, and, and have, a, have a discussion group. Imagine that we're in a library um, uh, somewhere instead of on Zoom, you know, around a big round table or something. Well, I'd love to ask you a lot more about Gundra, actually, but this is not the topic of our conversation. Perhaps we'll do another episode on that, and maybe even with Professor Fitzgerald. Yeah, I highly recommend you, you interviewing her. Yeah, fantastic scholar. Yeah, perhaps I will suggest I host a discussion between the two of you on Gundra, if there's something interesting there. We'll, we'll see. What do you think? Yeah, it could be. I consider her a better linguist and ethnographer than I am, though. So um, I'd right. rather furnish you with her expertise than necessarily be involved but we can yeah we can talk <laughs> splendid the other thing uh that i was going to ask you about your teacher and colleague dr anita has recently gone into six-month retreat and i know there are various reasons why lamas go into extended retreat including importance of obstacles such as their obstacle year and so on a time of astrological significance in a person's life where things can go wrong i suppose in terms of life force or health or uh, 
general circumstances. It seems that uh, so Rigpa Online, which is the site that you're offering your courses through, it's at quite a peak of interest and activity. So in some ways, it seems an odd time to go on retreat from, I suppose, a business point of view. I'm wondering, do you know why Dr. Nida has gone into retreat? And are you aware of what he'll be working on while he's on retreat? Um, I don't know the details of what he'll be working on while he's on retreat. Um, uh, he did say something in one of our, our concluding classes, our Sarugpa classes, about how traditionally in Tibet, you wouldn't even know someone was going on retreat <laughs> because they wouldn't want to announce it. And you'd kind of only know once they were gone. Um, <clears throat> so he was reflecting on the kind of strangeness of, you know, being in this position where he was announcing his retreat. For me, my understanding is that Nida has been teaching for 23 years, uh, nonstop, and has never really taken a retreat of this, of this kind, a break. And I also think it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier, being online so much during the pandemic has saturated people with work and activities and Nida was kind of hugely in demand. And so I think that him going into retreat now is giving him a chance to take a break from all of the, all of the teaching that he's been doing. The first time in, like I said, 23 years. It'll be very interesting to talk to him on his return. He mentioned that he would yes. uh, do an interview with me uh, when he comes out of retreat. Uh, so I'm quite excited to ask him about how it went and, and what, what the story was. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this is one of the features of the Yutuk Nyintik is short retreats. It's one of the things that I think is so uh, exciting about the lineage is that people have the opportunity to do short retreats and Nida now gets the opportunity to do a long retreat. He's been so busy with, with medicine and with teaching. It's funny how often when you're in the position of being a facilitator of other people's retreat, you don't always get the chance to take time for yourself. Um, so I'm also curious about what it will be like when he gets back. And we also, as an organization, are, are kind of we're interested now in, in, in having an organization that operates not solely based on one individual. We want our organization to be multi-part, have many teachers. So at the moment, um, you know, it will be an interesting experiment for us too. We're still very new, as you said, but finding, finding out how our activities will shift while Nida is away. Um, his charisma, I mean, his charisma is a large, part of the reason we were able to have an organization and organize these classes, his existing uh, network of students. Um, it's only a six month break, but I think it will, it'll be interesting too for us to, to, to see how our activities evolve uh, in that time. Yeah. Very cool. Well, let's pivot to the topic at hand, shall we? In our correspondence leading up to this interview, we were discussing some possible things we could talk about. And you you mentioned that you were writing an article or you were going to write an article on ejaculation versus non-ejaculation in terms of religious sexual practices such as karma mudra. And you also mentioned that the impetus to write that article was the many questions you receive on the topic. It's also a topic that I occasionally ask my guests about, particularly if they specialize in energetic practices uh, such as Tumo or Karma Mudra or Qigong and so on. In fact, I asked Dr. Nida about it when we discussed Karma Mudra, and he actually referenced the book that you wrote together 
on the subject, Karma Mudra. So we decided to discuss that topic in depth here, once and for all, <laughs> perhaps, probably not though. So by way of introduction, why do you think that you get so many questions about this? Why is this topic of such interest to people? Mm, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. I think I can, I can think of a number of things Certainly the idea of sex and spirituality being combined together in general is always uh, interesting to a lot of people anyway, or off-putting to some people or kind of titillating in, in, in a sort of broad sense. Um, and then when we're talking about sex and the mechanics of sexual practice and sexual desire and uh, body fluids, things around which there's a lot of kind of shame or cultural taboo or excitement. I guess psychologically and culturally, you could understand why these things uh, stimulate people um, in, a, in a very basic way. Uh, in terms of why always these questions, I think I haven't studied this in any in any great way, but I think that like if you look in popular culture, there very much is an association in, in the popular consciousness between Tantra as a weird sex thing and uh, extended sessions of sex, uh, um, usually without male ejaculation. So that that's sort of the popular perception. You know, I remember, what was that movie? I think it was the second American Pie movie. One of the characters you know, learns retent, you know, seminal retention, and this has all these kind of comedic uh, effects. Um, and yeah, I, I'm also just thinking about this, this sort of, this is a whole other rabbit hole, it's probably not worth going into, but there's this whole sort of popular movement now that I haven't, like I said, really looked into, but I catch glimpses of it on, on the internet every once in a while, like No Nut November. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this kind of messaging yeah. boards and it seems like it's at this interesting in intersection of kind of uh incel discourse and culture and sort of other stuff around male self-improvement uh like kind of you find a lot of these discussions also happening on messaging boards for like bodybuilding and uh biohacking it's it's sort of there's a there's a whole lot of intersecting areas right now. No fap is called, I believe. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, this kind of idea of sort of male self mastery, which, like I say, can occasionally tie into uh, the culture of sort of the the wildly misogynistic, uh, fantastical culture of incels online. Um, I think a lot's happening at once. And I think people often come to a lineage-based set of practices or um, traditional Tantra with a lot of exposure to popular imagery or ideas, or they've uh, encountered similar but different or, or somewhat parallel practices in, in, a, in a different context. So a lot of people, uh, one of the things, I can't remember if it's actually in the Karma Mudra book, but I know it was something that, that Nida said, 
more than once, he, he recalls a situation where a student of his said, well, I've studied kind of contemporary versions of, of Taoist sexual alchemy, what does Mantak Chia call it, seminal Kung Fu, you know, um, ovarian Kung Fu. And so I do that in the bedroom. And then all the non-bedroom stuff is Vajrayana for me, because I practice Vajrayana. He said, well, that kind of split, that kind of categorization doesn't make any sense. It's, it's not that you can't, uh, that there aren't teachings on sex and sexuality and desire in Vajrayana. And he, uh, I think Nida was tickled by that, you know, that sort of declaration. Um, and it seemed to indicate something about the accessibility of, of information about uh, Tibetan versions of these practices, if, if you could be so like bold as to express it that way. Um, so yeah, I think, I think people also easily get fixated on rules and regulations around their own person and their own body. So a lot of the questions that come up are anxious questions too. Uh, perhaps students have seen scriptural injunctions that practitioners of certain highest yoga tantra teaching should, should never lose their tele, their bindu. Um, and as a result, become fixated on the idea that anytime they ejaculate, uh, you know, they're, they're going to Vajra hell or they've broken their vows or they've done something terribly, terribly wrong, which they maybe weren't even aware of was wrong until, you know, a certain moment. And so there's a lot of things. I, I mean, one part of me wants to sort of be dismissive and cynical and say, you know, male, male students might have a tendency to get fixated on their sexual function. I don't know. Um, that seems too that seems too easy, uh, and it's of course this is not only a conversation about men, even though the tradition has always been so androcentric. Uh, so yeah, when we're talking about these practices, we we can get into this later. As much as they're expressed in such a sort of masculinist vocabulary or set of aspirations, they always imply a kind of broader broader set of ideas about gender and also going beyond gender. So it's not only men that ask these questions, but it is often phrased in terms of, do these practices involve ejaculation of semen from the penis or not? Um, that's often what these things hinge from. And how should I be having sex? Who should I be having sex with? And, and there's often a sort of confusion about, about vows and uh, levels of practice and, and what's expected of different types of practitioners. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, very interesting. A couple of things that came from what you said, you're talking a lot about this popular idea of Tantra in the mainstream and something that you deal with in your PhD dissertation is the interaction between popular, say, neo-tantric ideas or new age ideas of uh, Tantra in terms of sex and scholarship. And a kind of back and forth has occurred where initially it seems these practices were seen as being all about, you know, sex and demons and sort of things like that. And then scholarship changed and said, no, 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 actually, it's not really about that. And actually, it's all symbolic or uh, it's not that way. And then that idea coming into somewhat the new age and neo-tantric scenes and saying, well, we practice classical Tantra because we do not 
do sexual practice because as we know from the recent scholarship you know it's not really like that and then the further scholarship saying oh actually no there are actually quite a bit of sex and demons in here more than perhaps we previously thought and you you go through this unfolding of the scholarship in your dissertation so i'm wondering if you by way of further introduction before we get in a sense to the practices themselves if you could talk a bit about how these practices have been viewed in the academy and also among practitioners and converts in your dissertation you recount a conversation with a western convert who you call meve in which she lays out a position that as you say uh, to quote you seem to be saying that the only people qualified to undertake the practice of sexual yoga were those who were already so developed in meditation that they had accomplished the goal of karma mudra practice before they'd even started it so could you say a little bit about the history of the scholarship of this and some of the views in terms of converts and practitioners yeah um so you know a lot of what i'll say now is covered probably more succinctly <laughs> Uh, and less tangentially, I imagine, in the Karma Mudra book, sort of in the beginning chapters where uh, Dr. Nida addresses this question of, if these practices are so advanced and so secret, why have a kind of introductory text in English describing them, at least to a limited extent? So that is, I, I'll just, I'll note that, that, that that is one of the issues, central issues that's covered in that book, in the Yoga of Bliss. But yeah, what I can say is uh, my friends who are Shaiva scholars have often framed it in this way and in, in saying that it seems like in India, historically, one of the sort of defining features of Vajrayana was that they sort of took up and ran with existing sexual sadhanas of various kinds and augmented and evolved and developed them. And what had, you know, th there were practices in the Shaiva context that required uh, penetrative sex either with spirits or with physical human consorts, either for the uh, accomplishing of siddhis, uh, special abilities, or as part of um, uh, worship um, and as part of initiatory practices. Uh, Indian Vajrayana takes some of these elements, which we're still not entirely sure exactly from where and how and when, and, 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 and reorganizes them. And so on the one hand, as we've discussed in, I think, another interview, uh, earlier in uh, the history of Indian Vajrayana, practicing with an actual physical sex partner and engaging in sexual meditation, meditation, uh, contemplative practice, that uh, included sexual stimulation and arousal and, and uh, involved contemplation on the arising of sexual pleasure, that type of sexual meditation practice was at a certain point sort of the price of admission. Um, it was built into the initiatory structure of Haist Yoga Tantra so that in an earlier point in Indian history, it was kind of like, once you start, you started with with the initiation of sexual meditation practice. It wasn't something that you only did much later. It was sort of an, an initial practice that would point out to you, uh, even if just briefly as a glimpse, uh, give you some connection to to the kinds of uh, insights uh, and meditative cultivation that you would then subsequently be trying to reachieve every time you engaged in your 
in your sadhana. As we discussed previously, over time, these practices uh, became more symbolic, uh, deliteralized, and now it's possible to engage in these stages of highest yoga tantra initiation at a Tibetan empowerment in a much more symbolic way. And the empowerment may be one that's uh, facilitated or led by a monastic practitioner who has never practiced with a physical, has never had sex uh, with a physical partner in an ordinary way or in a kind of yogic meditative way either. So um, there's, there's a sort of evolution there and we need to pay attention to how these multiple uh, different strands of practice have, have shifted over time and been emphasized and re-emphasized or under-emphasized. Today, what you'll often hear is that uh, few or perhaps no people are qualified to practice karma mudra, the Sanskrit term for the actual physical consort. But we, you know, in in Dr. Nita's book, we kind of used it as a uh, as a more general term to describe the whole concept of sexual sexual meditation sadhana. Um, this, you know. You, as Dr. Nida explained in his interview with you previously, people will say, well, no one has the requisite training and expertise. So what that training is, is typically an extremely high level of mastery of the channels, drops, and wins. So what that looks like essentially is a very developed Hatha yoga practice um, uh, in the sort of early Indian sense. The idea of being able to manipulate the internal vital energies of one's own subtle body and not so subtle body, um, so that when engaging in a kind of partnered hatha yoga, it was then, you know, you could do that with mastery and without, you know, unwanted side effects. So in the Tibetan context, uh, what that typically translates to is mastery of tumo, inner heat. Uh, inner fire yoga, which we could think of as a kind of solo sexual yoga practice, because really the, 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 the technical mechanics of Tomo yoga are very much the same technical mechanics to a large extent of, of practicing with a, with a partner. Um, they're, they're a foundation for any such practice. And traditionally one, as I said, trains in Tomo and as a, as a, as a basis from which to then cultivate with another, with another's body. Um, and then in addition to Tumog, th there are specific, uh, again, Hatha yoga. Now this, this word Hatha in Sanskrit refers to forceful, uh, sort of aggressive methods for controlling the vital force in the body, preventing its dissipation, recirculating it. The best way of thinking about this is is as a kind of alchemy. The, the, the yogic body becomes a kind of alembic flask in which the practitioner is able to uh, cook up various, distill various uh, energies, forces, substances in order to ultimately transform that body and their perception. So uh, we see this across the world, really. Many of these cognate traditions of sexual meditation inner alchemy, they have this quality 
this uh, this shared kind of rhetoric or or or, or 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 set of idioms or language around which to understand this kind of uh, uh, now I'm going to use this term with with the strong eye roll, but a kind of hacking of of the body. I, I say strong eye roll because I'm so aware of how much this has been commodified and 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 transformed into this kind of tech bro enthusiasm around you know around mindfulness and yogic practices because we're seeking ultimate cultivation and again that sort of masculine mastery but i don't think that it's inappropriate to see some resonances between these traditional practices and some of that in my dissertation i i, I talk about the irony of how many of the the practices for manipulating the ejaculatory reflex which one finds in ancient tantric texts of India and Tibet can now be found regularly recycled in the pages of Men's Health magazine. Um, and I'm not saying that in a cute, snide way. They are exactly the same techniques, um, just extracted from a much broader, richer context of spiritual cultivation and morality. And For sexual yoga practices in the Tibetan context in particular, uh, the sort of additional training that we see classically is uh, uh, many people today know that are familiar with the the Sanskrit term for this vajroli mudra. Um, it's the it's a kind of urethral sucking practice which you spoke about at length with Dr. Nida in, in your discussion with him. Um, and these practices are very complex and and demanding. Essentially, you know, you know, Jim Mallison, who works in the Indian sort of history of yoga, Hatha yoga context, has written an article about this based on his textual and personal practice and ethnographic research with uh, Hatha yogis in India. And he talks about what the ultimate sort of biomedical effects of the practice may be or have, may have been. Uh, but these practices can can also be quite strange and alienating when we encounter them today in the contemporary context because they seem to be at once extremely concrete and physical you know one has to suck up actual fluids as part of training water and milk through one's uh, urethra and and reach such a level of mastery that one can can bring it out of other orifices of one's body in a fashion that seems to go completely against our biomedical understanding of what's possible. But irrespective of these sorts of ambiguities in these texts, which someone like Ruth Westerby, who's working on women's bodies in the context of Hatha Yoga has really described uh, very nicely in her research, um, you know, you've got these, this ambiguity where you're not quite sure what's being described. We have terms like these multivalent terms like, like bindu or tigle in Tibetan that can both mean excreted semen in some contexts, but really don't quite mean that at all because they're referring to a kind of essential substance inside the body and also beyond it. So um, beyond the ordinary concrete boundaries of the physical body. So these practices, just to get back to the technicalities, require that yogis and yoginis uh, work with the urogenital diaphragm in various ways. And they're sort of 
certain tests and training exercises. But I think ultimately, when you look at these practices side by side, the common thread is that they're part of a suite of training exercises designed to give the yogi or yogini mastery over their subtle winds, mastery over their vital energy or force, uh, and uh, which allows them to uh, reverse the flow of some of these, these uh, lung or, or winds that are part of the ordinary physiological functioning of sort of thoughtless worldly life. So in Tibetan medicine and Ayurveda, we have these five winds that govern various physiological processes. And there's a lower wind, a downward voiding wind that controls the function of excretion and an ascending wind that controls uh, various other functions like breathing and swallowing, pervasive wind and so on. And these practices were kind of aggressive, like I said, hatha, physical uh, means of engaging actively and forcefully kind of suppressing and reversing uh, impulses and tendencies governed by these vital forces like excretion. Uh, they were essentially ascetic practices in the sense that, that you were doing something which was very extreme and uncommon. Uh, in order to have to, to gain some kind of uh, higher transcendental result. So um, these practices are difficult and there weren't very many people who had necessarily mastered them or had done them. They often required a strong basis of physical yoga training from a very young age. So those people who, who, who could master them had to start doing them from a, from a very young age. And this is how it was done in Tibet amongst yogis uh, and is still done. Um, but I think this is where to go back to your original quotation, this idea comes that, well, there can't be any sexual meditation for us plebs because we haven't spent decades in a cave mastering tumor and doing complicated, difficult, uh, hard to understand occasionally uh, um, practice, catheter sucking practices and so on. Um, so how can we even, if, if we're nowhere even near the preliminaries of, this, of these practices, how could we now be claiming that we could dare engage in these things? So what Dr. Nida has much more succinctly explained than me is that there are various levels of practice. There always have been. Uh, there, there have always been different types of sexual um, meditation practice, sexual yogas, and they don't all require the same methods, the same uh, preliminary training. And uh, some of them rely much more heavily on certain kinds of hatha yoga expertise than others. And so the ones that we discuss and have put in the book, both coming from the Yutok Nyintek, which has an unusually kind of uh, elaborate and sort of uh, how to, it teaches karma mudra on various levels for various types of practitioners in quite a clear way. So the book talks about that. And then also, uh, you know, I'm just repeating what Nida already told you, but he, he explained that we, we also put other things in the book to other sadhanas 
that would demonstrate to students that it's not always about this intense mastery over things like the ejaculatory reflex, over things like, uh, um, you know, the physical body and the winds, that there, that there are suddenness. And they're not new, they're not contemporary dilutions or deteriorations of lineage-based traditions. They have always existed, um, or I wouldn't say always, they, they have a historical pedigree. Um, and so what's been interesting for me as a scholar, you know, because I'm so aware of, of comments like the one you mentioned, was that was my reaction when Nida asked me if I would be interested in assisting him with looking at this material and translating it and making it available to people. My first reaction, based on my understanding then, was Kama Mudra is too advanced. It's for people who are already beyond pure and impure. It's for transgressive, crazy yogis who are basically saints already. It's not, it's again, it's not for plebs like you and me with ordinary desires and, you know, a poor grasp of the ultimate truth. But what's been interesting for me in looking at figures in Tibetan history who have taught Karma Mudra at different moments in time has been to see how they themselves respond to the question, to the provocation that you mentioned. Uh, there are particular figures whose work Nid and I have looked at who very explicitly say, yeah, I'm aware that, that there are these types of practices that require this level of training or expertise I'm, I'm, and, and these types of vows and commitments. And I'm aware that they're so hard to maintain. Um, and so for that reason, while most or no people may be able to achieve Buddhahood in this life, in this body, using those methods, because they're too demanding and such a fortunate or cultivated student is virtually unheard of, here are some other methods. And, you know, there are real breathing people saying like, here's how you can incorporate meditative sadhana into your, in, into your, your sexual relationships. And these practices are also demanding. They're also not just for recreational purposes, um, but, but there's a kind of more grounded, realistic assessment of you know, what's possible for different students at, at different levels. So I think to, to conclude, Karma Mudra has become so associated with secrecy and, and the requirement of an incredible level of yogic mastery that even the thought that they could be, a, you know, I know people who didn't even want to physically touch the book or let alone read it for fear that it might break their samaya because the word itself was so charged. It was an apex practice that they weren't allowed to engage with. And I know Ian Baker has said something similar about his book on Tibetan yoga. And by many people's standards, it may be inappropriate to talk about these things. Uh, it, but my own teacher, you know, pointed me to citations from other great masters who suggested that it would be possible and beneficial if these other types of more accessible sexual meditation practices were made more available. And he requested that I assisted him in doing this work. So everyone is allowed to have hesitation, of course, and feel uncertain about engaging with this material, um, you know, 
absolutely. But for me, uh, I think unveiling some of this material and letting people see that 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 the sort of almost caricatures of it don't necessarily do it a service. And some of those historical figures, those Tibetan masters from the past that I mentioned, you see them themselves saying, not many people are doing this anymore. I read about these methods in the older Indian texts or, you know, this tradition, oral tradition, how does one do this? You know, are this, is it possible? Uh, it, you know, would it be possible to spread these teachings more? Nida is very inspired by Lelung Rinpoche, this kind of renegade uh, Gulukpa tents, somewhat Nyingma uh, treasurer villa, who has very interesting things to say about his own community of yogis and yoginis and his own uh, intention to kind of make these teachings accessible. And he's not the only one. There are other teachers who who have said it, it would be a shame if, if there wasn't some way to talk about this. Uh, and that's definitely Nida's perspective. And so, yeah, we shouldn't be talking about technicalities with the uninitiated, but I think it's important to, to realize, um, as I mentioned in my introduction to the book, that if we caricature or stereotype these teachings as just a fancy set of, uh, methods geared towards patriarchal abuse of women, or if we sort of crystallize them as just impossibly uh, advanced Hatha yoga practices that really speak more to male anxieties and male quest for self-mastery than they do to real embodied experience, then we, we, we gain something, we see something uh, in that in that typification, these things are like all stereotypes are, are based on some reality, but we also miss things too. So, so that's my long rant. Very interesting. And it seems uh, also we were discussing a little bit before we were recording that part of the reason for the diversity of opinions in scholarship, for instance, in your dissertation, you juxtapose David Gordon White's views with Jim Mallison's views, um, mm. showing them to have quite different views on these topics is because actually these practices have been used for many different objectives in many different contexts and indeed in many different cultures. And as we were discussing before we began recording, Tibet itself has aspects of the sexual practices that one finds in the Indic systems, but also indeed in the in the Chinese and Taoist systems and so on. It seems that there are so many different approaches to, if we refocus on ejaculation control, for example, um, mm. the aesthetic impulses, means of purifying desire, uh, the hedonic, perhaps, making sex better, and even perhaps the largest category, the instrumental, using it by means of sublimation, harnessing it, putting it to work towards whatever end, creative ends, life extension, spiritual attainment, this sort of thing. You write in your dissertation, karma mudra practice may legitimately involve a supposedly more neo-tantric style of ejaculation control than scholars of classical Indian tantric traditions have acknowledged. But despite such similarities, it's nonetheless true that neo-tantric sacred sexuality and sexual self-help practices tend to be informed by vastly different priorities, worldviews, histories, and assumptions to traditional Vajrayana procedures. And I'm curious, you know, you're a scholar, an anthropologist, scholar of Buddhism, but you're also very well versed in other traditions. Academically and as a practitioner, we've discussed some of those interests in 
previous interviews, such as Western occultism, other other Indic systems also. Could you give us an overview of how the issues of ejaculation and orgasm in specific are treated in the various traditions in which you're familiar? And in particular, I suppose, in the Utok-Nyintik system uh, into which you're initiated. Uh, that overview might, might require a year-long uh, course, um, at least in my head. Um, so you, well, I'll start with Vajrayana, you know, very often in the context of uh, tantric yoga, kind of completion stage tantric yoga practices, things like Tomo, things like Karma Mudra um, practice, you will see injunctions that say things like, do not, do not lose even a, even a mustard seed's worth of the tigle, now, or bindu in Sanskrit. Now, bindu is not semen. Tigle is not semen. So this right away is, is something very important to point out. Um, sexual yoga, Tibetan Buddhist sexual yoga practices talk about gaining control over over the tigle, over the bindu, much like in Indian hatha yoga practices. And the bindu has a connection to the visible emitted reproductive fluids of males and females' bodies. But that's not what it is exclusively or in some cases at all. Uh, so that's one thing. <laughs> but then the second thing I'll say is that gaining control over the ejaculatory urge, uh, having sexual activity without quickly ejaculating in the sort of everyday common sense that we understand what that means uh, is a part of uh, sexual yoga, sexual meditation training in, in Vajrayana. Um, and I think we can, we can understand that in different ways. We, I think the simplest and most useful way of understanding it is that it allows practitioners to be meditative in the context of sexual stimulation. So I'll explain. There are many other tantric yogas. Uh, you know, the, there's the classic system of, of the Narachodrok, the, the, the six dharmas or yogas of Naropa, also the six yogas of Niguma, uh, other traditions. Um, but they become a somewhat standardized system. So all of those yogas are, are aimed at introducing, reintroducing uh, the practitioner to the nature of their own mind, to clear light awareness, to the most subtle reaches of consciousness and beyond. Um, and sexual yoga is one means to do that. So if you look at an example which maybe is less charged and maybe may be more familiar to some people, less exotic, is dream yoga. Uh, in dream yoga, the intention is that one learns to engage mindfully with the experience of dreaming. Whereas in an ordinary way, one's dreams might be brief and rough and confusing and unaware through the gradual cultivation of dream yoga methods, one learns to 
you know, at the beginning, just remember dreams. A lot of people are so unattentive, uh, non-mindful that they don't even know they have, they are having dreams. So remember dreams, clarify dreams, and then become aware within the experience while in the experience, being aware of, of the nature of that experience in a much deeper, more fundamental way. So, uh, if I said to someone who was committed to the practice of dream yoga, there is a samaya that you now have that when you go to sleep at night, you must not watch Netflix. You must not fall asleep with Netflix playing. You must consciously go to sleep and honor the coming dreams so that you can understand them, so that you can realize their nature and use them as a basis for practice. That's what yoga is in Tibetan. The term yoga is nenjo, right? Nal, this first syllable, means the ultimate natural basic state, the original, the original nature. And jor means to arrive at or, or to, to, to join with. So yoga of whatever kind is about rejoining, reuniting, re realizing uh re-remembering how you want to conceive of it uh that's that that basic nature so if i said to you okay dream yogi <laughs> you now have a binding samaya which says that if you fall asleep while watching netflix thou shalt not <laughs> you know watch one ep binge watch one episode at the cost of your very life now, if we talk about that in the context of dream yoga, we can understand why someone would make that injunction, knowing what the point of the practice is, right? Um, we could say, well, yeah, I shouldn't do that because if I'm really committed to cultivating dreaming, that's adverse, that, that's, that's investing in something that's working against my practice. So one way of interpret, interpreting these injunctions around uh, uh, learning how to have sort of coitus reservatus or, or, or sex, sex without emission is in, in a practical instrumental way. If you don't learn those things, you're never really going to be capable of using sexual bliss, using embodied visceral pleasure as a basis for meditation, which is what sexual yoga, sexual meditation really is. One needs enough bliss. One needs enough pleasure in order to meditate on it with a clear and stable awareness to realize its emptiness. And the, the instructions will often say one must blend. This is the term, one must mix or integrate the appreciation of the emptiness of these arising sensory phenomena with their, their the Shiva with their Shakti, the, the limitless per, pervasive kind of empty still awareness with, with their dynamic expression, form and, and emptiness uniting. And we can do this with any of the yogas, right? So on one level, the reason for these, these injunctions is, is, like I said, really just practical. Because 
if it's the same way that the Kala Chakra and other Tantras explicitly tell trainee yogis and yoginis that they should study Kama Shastra. They should study worldly sexology literature that existed in India at that time, precisely for those instrumental practical reasons. If you can't learn how to engage mindfully in an expanded, extensive way, if you can't rest for extended periods of time in the experience of arousal, sexual arousal, then the method of sexual yoga or sexual meditation is, it's not going to be viable for you. Now, I'm not sure if this is the only explanation. This seems like a quite a glib way of understanding what seems like a very strong injunction. I think that Vajrayana incorporates into it. You know, remember Tibetan Buddhism is, is sort of constantly absorbing new technologies and trends from India in multiple waves. So we know now from Jim Mallinson's research that Buddhist or hybrid Buddhist communities in India were the ones who first developed some of these interiorized kind of interiorizations of sexual ritual, which become Hatha Yoga manipulation of vital seed or bindu. Um, so I think that there's something more to these injunctions too, and that there's the idea that cosmologically in the sort of miniature world of the alchemical flask, if one can reverse the process of the downward flow of the vital forces which are concretized in physical reproductive fluids, usually in the context of sex, and which produce life externally, which continue the becoming, the conditioned becoming of sansara. If we can reverse them, then we can reverse death. We can reverse the dissipation, uh, the outward flow of, which is the nature of samsara, satche uh, in Tibetan, conditioned things, things that flow, that break down we can reverse that process and we can uh, uh, transform our bliss, our, uh, uh, our joy into a joy that is beyond conditioned joy, that is beyond conditioned bliss, that is beyond limitations and samsaric dissipations. So I think that there's something about a kind of deeper worldview uh, that's also at play here that we, we can't just discredit. Uh, having said that, as Dr. Nida himself has mentioned, in the Tibetan context, many of the sort of most uh, advanced practitioners who've, who've deigned to write on some of the more practical details have acknowledged that, look, you can't actually hope to never ejaculate and be okay. Um, so Lelong Shepe Dorje uh, says this very explicitly in some of his instructions to his students. He says, look, I, this is what the texts say, and this is the ideal. But in my experience in practice, many people experience the development of chronic illnesses. It actually becomes an obstacle to the practice, the intense ascetic suppression of particular urges or the reversal or, 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 or forceful hatha kind of manipulations. Uh, Lelong is very interesting. He actually constantly mentions how he's told by his uh, Dakini instructor as well, 
that whether or not he knows these methods isn't important because they're just means and he must strike the point of the practice, which he can do with or without ejaculation. And the methods that he actually teaches to his cohort of, of many women actually, and, and, and young men it, it, at this time in Tibetan history, he's very explicit that, that it's up to them if they are capable of safely uh, engaging in the practices in extended ways without ejaculation, they may do that. But he also explains how they can do the practices with ejaculation and still accomplish the practices. And so, you know, he actually, he makes the specification. He says these Hatha Yoga practices uh, are very dangerous. He actually says they're quite, can be quite harmful and create serious problems down the line, which could make it difficult for you to engage in any type of subtle energy uh, sexual yoga practice at all. So, so that's a point. So I would say on the one hand, in the, in the Vajrayana context, we see that these injunctions are made and this emphasis on uh, you know, non-ejaculatory sex is because, and it's the same with Tumo, mind you. Um, if you learn Tumo, and you're in retreat, and, and traditionally you usually celibate when you're when you're learning tumo for extended periods of time. And if you are ejaculating regularly and uncontrollably, because the purpose of the practice is to create enormous amounts of we often hear in the popular press about the heat, but the heat is is inseparable with the bliss, and the bliss is inseparable with emptiness. And so that's a huge amount of physical uh, sensory stimulation. And it's very common for men and women to have sexual reactions during the practice. And if they start having too many sexual reactions and fantasies, this can dissipate the kind of energy that you're trying to contain as an initial basis for the, the kindling of a certain kind of alchemical transformation. So this is very similar to what we see in, in Taoist practices as well. Um, although Taoist practices uh, you know, there's been some discussion about whether the Indian Hatha Yoga practices actually come from China. It's quite possible. Maybe China is the original. I don't know. Maybe the original, maybe there was no original. Everyone was just sharing so much. Who can say? But with Chinese practices, we also see an enormous emphasis on preventing ejaculation, and especially in how these practices have been transferred in the contemporary context a lot of focus on often quite harsh and blunt methods for preventing ejaculation or even just retaining physical fluid at all costs. To my mind, given my understanding of the Tibetan material, I feel like this seems to be a, a sort of fetishization of the material, a sort of materialization of something that's more complex, multi-layered and subtle. As I mentioned before, tigle or bindu is not is not semen, not not semen that you can see once ejaculated out of the body, or or menstrual blood uh, after menstruation, or, or or female sexual fluids. We're talking about something that exists inside, as I said, and beyond the body, and is being refined from inside the body. And so, uh, what we one really interesting development is many Tibetan doctors, uh, including Dr. Nida, but not exclusive to him, 
in Tibet have started thinking about how do tantric yogic anatomies correlate with biomedical understandings of the flow of fluids and secretions. And increasingly, arguments are being made by Tibetan and non-Tibetan commentators. Dr. Nida makes this claim, Ian Baker has made this claim, doctors in Tibet are making this claim, that there is a correlation between hormones, uh, endocrinal secretion, and tigle on its grossest level. So in the Tibetan context, tigle has many, many levels and many, many registers. So there's zegi tigle, uh, the tigle of substance, concrete, gross, substantial tigle. And this perhaps correlates with the juices of the body in, in what we might, in a biomedical sense, understand as, as hormonal secretions. Um, it still doesn't correlate with, with, with semen uh, and menstrual blood and things like this or, or, or physical external secretions in terms of these practices. Because as I say, in medical and in tantric terms, those things are largely understood as waste products, as the, 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 the nikma, the, the dregs of these, of these distillates in the body. So um, the reason that medicine in Chinese, Indian and Tibetan context and yoga and alchemy all overlap is precisely, I think, because of this shared view, this shared idiom of, uh, of, of distillation, of, 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 of a kind of alchemical process. Every human being, whether they engage in spiritual, spiritual cultivation or, or yogic practice or not, is engaging naturally in a kind of digestive, distillative, is that a word? I don't know. Um, D -d distillation process in just absorbing nutrients from their food and growing the tissues of the body and discarding and excreting waste products. And in a way, inner alchemical and yogic practices across the board are describing a kind of, in much the way that alchemy in general talks, you know, this is an art where we refine nature itself. We observe and we watch the processes of nature, but then we come in and go, I'm do that here, I'm gonna step in here, I'm gonna, you know, and you sort of heighten and expedite uh, existing processes. You reverse them, you refine them. Uh, and this is very much the sense. Uh, and so I think there's, there's some slippage between magic jizz <laughs> you know the idea that inside my body i have you know some and this is how you see it on the kind of on the forums on like the no fat forums they're like i read one in a, in a western occult group i'm in that sort of posts the most egregious horrifying um facepalm things from forums it's a man talking about you know because he's retained his his semen his sperm uh can have the ability to read the thoughts of his previous lover in whom they've been inserted. And this kind of very interesting idea about the sort of magicalness of the sheer substance. And it's, it's a tricky thing because when we're talking about all these traditions, we are talking about the physical body. In the instructions on Tumo Yoga in the Yutok Nyintik, 
Yutok himself, or whoever wrote that uh, set of instructions, says um, at the end of all of these elaborate practical instructions on Tuma, he says, the most important and distinguishing feature of highest yoga tantra is that when one arranges things in, on, and of and through the body, when one aligns the physical body in a certain way, then realization arises in the mind. And so when it comes to Bindu and Tigle, we have this uh, um, sort of type of expression you see in text about the conventional level bodhicitta, the conventional level uh, Buddhist intention, bodhisattva intention, enlightened intention, but also as some viewers or listeners will know, bodhicitta can refer to the bindu, the tigle, and also to the physical substances, um, uh, menstrual blood, semen. And so there's the idea that if one works with one's body as a basis, as a means, realization can arise in the mind. And so we could understand this in a more contemporary idiom as being, again, I hate to say it, biohacking. If one, one is capable of manipulating the subtle, but on the grand scheme, still very gross uh, basis of our, because look, in, in medical terms, in traditional Tibetan medical terms, in Buddhist terms, with its teaching on interdependence, there is no consciousness. There is no uh, ability to practice Dharma, to study Buddhist philosophy, to, 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 to realize emptiness without the um, dependent origination of the body, right? Uh, and everything that goes into that, the, the elements, the constituents that make up the body, the substances, uh, the kleshas that we experience are connected to our physical nature, to the food we eat, to, to the hormones we secrete. Um, and so tantric yoga gets us in touch with that and says, to what extent can we work with that? When we dream, it's a, as a result, you know, in order to engage in the rarefied practice of dream yoga and lucid dreaming, we do it on the basis of the chemistry of, of the, the body and the brain. Uh, but we're also not bound to those things. So we do see a shift in which I briefly describe in, I, I, I hesitate to call it a shift because I'm a terrible historian or periodizer of these things. I have not sat enough with texts and done the really bitty, I'm just proposing a very vague possibility that it seems that already right from the beginning, you know, Tibetan Buddhists have received all of these complex Hatha yoga techniques, these sexual yogas, but, quite early on, there's a pushback against this. There's a pushback against this sort of intense fixation on training and relying on the, the means of the body to such an extent that one becomes quite, it becomes quite complicated. You know, you need to engage in all these ascetic practices and retreats and consume special medicines and substances and fast and it becomes, it becomes a whole lot of elaboration to get to something which is very simple, which is Mahamudra, because that's always what how Karma Mudra has been understood um, in the Vajrayana context. 
karma mudra is a kind of energized, embodied, sensual method for producing a context in which the uh, realization of Mahamudra, the great seal, uh, can be a arrived at. So this is said explicitly by early teachers of Mahamudra. It's very clear that and there's different tendencies. Yutok in the 12th century says, do all of this intensive training in Tumor and Karma Mudra when you're young and vital and, and you know, keen. And that will create a really powerful basis for quickly and easily uh, practicing realizing Mahamudra. But then in the text, uh, he has this very interesting line at the very end of the Karma Mudra sections. He says, um, uh, but for those people who um, are too old, so they don't have much of a sex drive, um, or who have uh, bad channels, um, defective channels, which makes this kind of technical kind of Hatha Yoga stuff potentially impossible or difficult, or who are manning, who are third gender or queer, you can interpret that in many different ways. But I assume in this context, it means that probably intersex, uh, that there might be practitioners who can't engage in kind of the penetrative sexual activities described here because of, of their physical body. He says, then skip all that. He says, forget about it. Forget about Karmudra entirely. You don't need it. Here are the Mahamudra instructions. Just do those. That's it. And that's the thing that is now no longer secret. You know, now you can pick up books on Mahamudra. You can Google. You can attend many classes. And as Nida has said, it's sort of so strange that um, people are a little bit sort of precious and triggered by the idea of any access to information about Karma Mudra, when really historically Karma Mudra was sometimes kind of dismissed by great adepts because they said, you got lost in the weeds there, buddy. Um, we were teaching you these methods just because they're really empowering, energizing and, and sort of stabilizing. Just like all the yogas, you know, dream yoga is an excellent way of understanding the fundamental Buddhist teaching of form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Not just intellectually appreciating it as a koan, but understanding and experiencing it. The same with uh, uh, the, in, the meditative intoxication of sexual bliss. Um, and so, but, you know, after all of, all, all of this ink spilled, all of this uh, discussion and, and, you know, recipes for drugs to take as aphrodisiacs or to increase the potency of the, of the, of the subtle fluids in the body, special means of engaging in, con, you know, producing a child if you opt to conceive one in the context of your practices, all of the things you might want to know if you're a shitty practitioner, here's the like shortcuts you can take. And then he says, well, actually, yeah, but that you don't need that. Some of you don't need that at all. So in, in Indian and Tibetan Vajrayana, practicing sexual yoga of various kinds was very important. Like I say, at one time, it was part of the, the beginning, the initiation. It's, it's been an important part of the, the treasure revealing tradition, uh, important mechanism or method there. Uh, so very important in many ways. But 
it's not, despite being one of the fastest main methods of achieving Buddhahood in one lifetime in one body, it doesn't, you know, already, like I said, quite early on, there are, there are statements saying like, we, we've got other methods that, that, that bypass this sort of, you could say maybe fickle dependency or this uh, sort of short uh, window of, of opportunity, you could say, because the, 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 the ideal time for these practices, like I said, is kind of when you're in your like, when you're in your teens and early mid twenties. Yeah, right about the time that you become interested in maybe having sexual partners. So it's from sort of traditionally it was from like 60 to 30 different, different 16 to 30, some say like 18, 20 to 35. Some say, and, and you know, everyone can do these practices depending on their constitution or their interest. Um, but yeah, to get back to your original question, many, many different traditions and many of them have gotten mixed together. So people often hear one thing from one place and wonder if it's the same or assume it's the same. So in Shaiva Tantra, in the classical Shaiva Tantra, we don't really see much in the classical sort of formal tradition about extended bouts of sex without ejaculation. Because what we do see is ejaculation and then uh, the commingling of male and female fluids and the offering of those fluids uh, in the context of initiation, in the context of um, ecstatic worship um, as a kind of non-dual tantric offering. We see this in Vajrayana too. Uh, we, we see the consumption of sexual fluids in Chinese contexts. We definitely see it in Western esoteric contexts. The ultimate elixir or uh, is, you know, Crowley was not very educated in Indian Tantra, and yet he somehow reversed engineered very similar practices um, involving the, the mixing of male and female fluids and their kind of ritualistic consumption uh, as a central kind of Eucharist. Uh, so we don't see as much emphasis in Western sex magic for that reason in Coitus Reservatus, uh, Crowley talked about something called erotocomatose lucidity, if I remember correctly, which was more focused on a female practitioner who would be kind of sensually worshipped but and engaged with by multiple men in order to, as a kind of kind of a kind of edging, a kind of hyper stimulation, which would result in states of erotic lucidity, visionary states oracular states. We definitely see the same kind of thing in the Tibetan context too. Lelong talks about how his various partners, female partners, frequently, he has visions in the context of sexual yoga in dreams uh, throughout his life, where he engages with dakinis and protector deities, um, receives terma and instructions. But we also read about how many of his uh, 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 partners also became possessed uh, by goddesses in the context of uh, uh, Ganachakra Puja, which he tried to sort of reinstate in a more, in an earlier, more traditional mold, which involved kind of ecstatic singing and dancing and maybe actual physical sex. If you read what he writes, it seems he was 
sort of trying to renew this practice, which he had heard about as being something that like, like Kaula type uh, Shaiva practices. And he perhaps felt that the Tsok uh, gatherings in the Tibetan context had become too staid. Um, I'm not entirely sure, but, but that's how it seems. Uh, we, we can't be sure about some of the reports, but uh, so we see uh, sex as being a, an entry point into visionary possessive states, which has always, always been a part of the tantric milieu in its earliest forms in India, to the point that some, you know, Alexis Sanderson has said that that the sort of highly refined philosophy of the, of the Kaula tantric groups was really a kind of, again, sublimation and an interiorization, a philosophizing of what were once quite concrete, charnel ground, visionary, ecstatic practices involving the, ex, ex, explicitly involving overwhelming spirit possession, uh, intense visionary states, dissolving of self. I mean, there's no better way to understand from the inside uh, the emptiness of self or the, the specious dualism of self and other than to be swallowed whole by a terrifying ravenous demoness, um, in my opinion. Um, so you see all of these different threads, uh, ecstatic sexual rites with spirits, sexual communion with spirits, with other humans that are becoming those spirits in the flesh, uh, quite literally through possession, uh, sexual congress with spirits in dreams. Uh, you see the consumption of consecrated mixed sexual fluids from partners, something we see in, in uh, that also sort of came into initiatic Wicca as well as you know, in the Heros Gamos, the great rite with the high priest and priestess embody the god and goddess and have sex and, and those substances are used ritually. Um, and then, you know, you see the more medical side in the, in the Chinese context where you have a lot of quite sort of pragmatic discussion about these sex positions and this exchange of energy can cure this disorder. Uh, you see a little bit of that in, in the Tibetan context, certainly sort of as the nekapki, as the temporary or incidental effects of some of these advanced um, uh, partnered practices. There is a discussion about the extending of life um, and about the healing of diseases. We have records from great yogis and yoginis who talk about seeking out sexual yoga partners, procuring them even, um, uh, for the purposes of life extension, or they're, they're being instructed by human or, or non-human instructors to cease being celibate. You know, one of the most common reasons in Tibetan history why monastics become non-monastics is often because they have some obstacle to their health, and they're instructed to do these kinds of yogic practices, especially sexual ones, to improve their vitality and extend their lives and remove these sorts of obstacles. When they may or may not take up that, that instruction or command. In my dissertation, I talk uh, about an important kind of set of examples of female practitioners who outright knowingly refuse the advances of men. 
armed with supposed prophecies and imperatives and say, look, I'm not going to become your partner. I could, I'm trained or I'm not trained, but I don't want to be trained or whatever, but the, I call it Dakini refusal and I, in a dissertation. And I think it's an important thing to note because that refusal is part of the kind of internal logic of some of these practices and the motivations. But I think the problem is people see one aspect of these things in whatever tradition, you know, oh, it's men with health problems seeking out young vital women and vampirizing their fluids and vital forces. Oh, it's um, uh, about intense ecstatic orgies in the charnel ground. Oh, it's about eating sexual fluids. Oh, it's about male ascetic mastery. And, and I think then that, that, like I said earlier, that takes us in one direction. But it, I, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing, a, we're seeing a constellation of practices in all of these contexts from the little I know, because I don't know a lot about this topic, mind you, um, the, we see experts sort of, they seem to have an awareness of, of these different layers of these practices. I'm very interested in how people, like I said before, in different periods have sort of negotiated this, including contemporary Tibetan physicians who are saying, is, is the fact that the Tigle is said in, in highest yoga tantra texts on the, on the, on the Vajra body, the Dorjilu, is the circulation or the dripping of the Bindu according to seasons or at different times, could we correlate this with the flow and secretions of you know, hormones? And if we do, what are the concepts, what do we gain and what do we miss? Um, these are conversations that are happening internally within, it's not that, you know, some fancy academic or non-Tibetan or English or whatever perspective is, is now reinterpreting these things. It's, I think I was looking at a text, uh, a set of instructions by Lelung, which he dictated to his students, where he's explaining to them, uh, you know, what is the female fluid? what is the, the, the female bindu, which has been a conversation which has sort of captivated medical and tantric theorists in India and China and, and, and Tibet for a long time. And there are different positions, but what's unique about Lelong is he's explaining uh, sort of in the context of sexual activity, how to identify women's secretions uh, you know, and how they correlate or don't correlate with men's. And so the, the, there's, the stuff is there. It's just that not all the right people are talking to one another always. You know, it's like uh, doctors know one thing and they may be familiar, familiar with certain tantric texts, but even Lelong says, look, the tantras themselves, the scriptures, they make these injunctions, but the oral instructions say something different. Like a classic example of this, I can't remember if we spoke about before, in the Yutok Nyintek, uh, when talking about Karma Mudra partners, Yutok, you can sort of see in the text that it's a direct, it feels like a direct quote that's been written down, probably by Sumtum or whoever else may have written it down. Um, Yutok's talking about what's the best mudra, because there's many texts that have these very technical, and sometimes quite like 
ruthless sort of unsettling to modern sensibilities categorization of different kinds of women for male use, you know. Um, and what's interesting is that Yutok says, the scriptures say so many things, and they say that the best mudra should have these qualities, the best partner should have these qualities. But let me tell you what my distillation of all the Guru's oral instructions are. And what he says is, it doesn't matter how old or young your consort is, because when it comes to actual practice, only you will know if your partner and you both turn each other on. If when you meet one another, because of your karma and your shared energetic qualities, you are naturally inspired, filled with bliss, feel a sense of lightness, a sense of joy, a sense of expansion. You can, you know, Lelong interestingly talks about some partners uh, who he actually, he actually gives instructions to his students where he says how to practice with partners that you aren't so connected with, <laughs> who might be more experienced than you, but that aren't really, don't really turn you on. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that these discussions are happening. That says a lot. But Yutok basically says, if you really want the practice to work, it's only going to work if you naturally have this kind of hormonal charge, you could say, this energetic charge and this natural compatibility on the level of body, energy, and mind. And that's because of karma. You cannot fabricate that. And he also says, if you can't successfully control and amplify the, the karcha, the, the white portion of the bindu, inside your own body, no amount of attempts Machiavellian or magical attempts to find the best, most suitable partner is going to make your practice work. So um, my point in saying that is that we have scriptural injunctions and ideals, and then we have communities of practitioners. Sometimes they write down their practical instructions. Very often they don't. And so we often you know, unless we have a living teacher, we often just have the injunctions to God, which say it must be done like this. It's only possible like that. And the reality is when it comes to tantric yogas or inner alchemies, which are embodied practices, all we have to use, all we have to go on is our own self. It's like we discussed before. I am not heterosexual. I don't identify as straight. I barely on a I, I don't really identify as a man. And so that's going to shape my, my own relationship to these practices. And it's shaped my relationship to Dr. Nida. And no amount of injunctions in scripture, references to heterosexual practice, uh, changes the fact that, you know, Nida's instructions to me and to other queer people was specific to their own embodied experience. And so... We can talk, just to get back to your original question, I have not forgotten it, this survey of the different traditions. We can say, in Taoism, it says, or Vajrayana claims, you know, we can say these things as if these traditions are people, but they're not people. People are the practitioners who live and breathe these traditions and make records and have debates with one another and apply these methods in terms of their own 
uh, embodied experience. And so we can't really say, we often do this as a sort of convenient shorthand, but it's a bit dangerous. We say, oh, in Crowley's sexual magic practices, it's, you know, it says this, so Western sex magic is like that. We have to be very careful about how we, we typify these things and contrast them. Because especially when you're with a living tradition, you, you may very well find that people are being instructed to do things a completely different way, even if, you know, texts of, and, and paradigms are being interpreted anew every time a practitioner comes to the practice. Um, everyone's going to have different issues, you know. If you struggle to increase and maintain bliss, and you want to do some version of these practices alone or with a partner, then that's going to require you to develop certain skills or rely on certain tools. If you have a lot of bliss but no control over it, you know, or are given to fantasy, you know, there's so many variables. And it's all just about what works and what we can work with. And sexual yoga was popularized and prioritized a lot in Vajrayana context. But we should also remember that it's just one of, of, a, of an endless array of methods. And it needn't become this kind of breathless thing either. Sex is a part of students' experience and um, uh, it may become a part of their practice and it may not. So uh, <laughs> I think I'm done with that question. <laughs> Very interesting indeed. You referenced there a bit of the Taoist traditions and also the Western sex magic traditions. I recall on one occasion being told with great gravity by a Taoist practitioner that it was very unwise to ejaculate by oneself because of the effect on the kidneys and the energy, vital energy of the body. But mm. that to ejaculate, if one had to do it, one should do it with a partner. He didn't specify if proximity is enough to protect against vital loss, proximity to the partner, or if there has to be some kind of activity done with the partner, or which, mm. what, where's the line there? Because there's a kind of reabsorption as part of partnered sex, whereas there's loss of energy when you're alone, and also potentially sleeping with ghosts. Um, you're also, the energy that's lost can become food for something else. Did, did he raise that concern as well? He didn't, but the haunted look in his eyes as he <laughs> laid forth his case, I think, may have implied that. So I'm curious if ejaculation uh, has any sort of medical or health vitality association in the utopian mm. tick, in addition to the spiritual ones. And also, you mentioned there about magic and the magical uh, aspects of the sexual fluids. And the sexual fluids used there sometimes, it seems, in the Western occult situation, sometimes can be used to empower a spell or ritual, or sometimes used as a focus for intent, mm. uh, which is seen to be an, an important part in those sorts of things, or indeed sometimes for their astral uh, connection to the people involved. These are, I think, separate but related mm. uses of those fluids in a magical context. Uh, I'm curious if uh, the Utoknintic, or more broadly the Tibetan context, has that sort of a use, also of sexual fluid, as a sort of ingredient in magical processes, such as you might find in Western occultism? Um, so I'll address the, the medical part first. Um, I think it's very important to note that in Soa Rikpa, Tibetan medicine, and in the Gyushi, the four medical tantras, the primary textbook of Tibetan medicine, still 
the backbone of medical uh, education today. The, the Gyushi is written by uh, Yutok, or at least sort of synthesized by Yutok, taught by Yutok. Um, and the Yutok Nyintek is Yutok's teachings on Tantra. So we've got these two treasures, but they're distinct. They overlap, but they're distinct. In the medical tradition, you know, in the chapter on, on healthy seasonal lifestyle, there's three chapters on lifestyle, chuba, uh, conduct or behavior in the, in the second uh, medical tantra. And in the sexuality is mentioned throughout the four tantras, but in the chapter on seasonal lifestyle, it's explained that ordinary people uh, should moderate. In this case, it's, it's pitched towards quite a male audience because it, it uses androcentric language, which tells us something about the, you know, historically doctors were all men. So this text of medical instruction is pitched towards men. Um, but now, of course, that's expanded. Now there's more women studying and practicing medicine, I think, than men globally. Um, only in the last generation, really, two generations. Uh, but Yutok says you should moderate your sexual behavior as a man uh, according to the seasons. And so one assumes that what he's suggesting is limiting excessive ejaculation. Um, but again, that's an assumption. He doesn't say that explicitly. He just says when you have sex, but I mean, we can assume because the average person is not doing seminal retention in the context of sex. So he says uh, in the hotter months, because of this medical notion of uh, how the body weakens uh, and it's kind of digestive power, it's distilling digestive power weakens, uh, in the hotter months, one should not overexert oneself physically, and one should not have sex every day and ejaculate every day. Again, he doesn't say and ejaculate, but we can assume. Uh, he says in winter, when the heat and energy in the body, the digestive capacity is kind of consolidated internally, kind of like a natural tumor, <laughs> uh, then he, he says a lovely expression in Tibetan, he says, because you are then puffed up, kind of is the term, inflated with rotsa, with, uh, with uh, libidinous energy, fertile libidinous energy, you may then have sex as many times as you like without a problem. And then he says that excessive sex can diminish bodily strength. It can weaken the sensory uh, organs. It can lead to vertigo. Uh, which are all kind of lung, lung disorders, uh, uh, imbalances of the vital winds. Um, and he says it can even lead to sudden death, uh, which Nida has interpreted as people who might have existing lung or cardiovascular issues, having to overdoing sex, like people who have heart attacks when they're using Viagra and things like that. It's, he didn't interpret it in the sense of like, oh no, you're only nine ejaculations away from sudden premature death. He really didn't see it like that. Um, so that's a bit different to some of the people who draw more on Chinese notions that, you know, every ejaculation, you're just getting that closer to death. And it's a very kind of like economical idiom. And even in popular talk, people 
also i'm saving this load <laughs> i've got you know i've got this four day load to deposit i'm like is it your money what is this, is this money <laughs> like there's interesting cultural things that people do when they talk about vital fluids that i always pay attention to but uh, then what's interesting is that in the subsequent chapter on on also in the lifestyle section the chapter the last lifestyle chapter which is called uh, uh temporary or incidental behavior uh, and it's it's really a whole chapter about the incredibly negative effects of suppressing or forcing any natural impulses so the list includes things like lacrimation crying vomiting sneezing coughing gasping for air when you need to uh, urination and then the last one is ejaculation and again it's framed in explicitly androcentric terms so it says that if you suppress the natural urge to ejaculate you will immediately cause an imbalance in the winds it also says that long-term suppression of the natural impulse to ejaculate will result in urogenital dysfunction. It will result in chronic urinary, uh, and we can assume it isn't, the pro prostate isn't specifically mentioned in traditional Tibetan medical texts, but it's sort of obliquely mentioned. Um, and yeah, it, it, it says that the, and you know, the text gives the symptoms caused by the repression and then the uh, way to cure it. And the way to cure it is have an oil massage, eat more lung balancing, suppressing, you know, vata suppressing foods and um, have more sex and ejaculate a lot. <laughs> um, and so Chinese medical texts are not so concerned about too, too much retention um, to, you know, it, they talk a little bit about the side effects, I believe of excessive retention and possible, uh, effects, but it's interesting that like a lot of what the Tibetan texts say are the symptoms of seminal retention or what some of the Chinese uh, Taoist enthusiasts say are the symptoms of excessive, uh, of excessive masturbation or ejaculation. So cold kidney disorder. Lelung himself says, if you do these, uh, you know, Vajrolitak practices wrong, or if you retain for too long, you can get he calls it cold kidney, kidney dysfunction, kidney pain. He also says chongne, um, uh, so uh, chronic internal diseases, things that can often become the basis for cancer. And we actually know from uh, contemporary biomedical research that there is a correlation between frequency of ejaculation in kind of young adulthood and likelihood of later development of prostate cancer. So, and then Yutok is saying on, in the Yutok Nyentek, just across the way, retain the bindu. He, he's describing karma mudra retreats, which require an enormous amount of seminal, seminal retention for long periods of time, but it's part of the training. Um, and he does describe opportunities for um, ejaculation and he does mention that one of the reasons you might ejaculate besides wanting to conceive a child or use those substances in a, as a kind of ritual substance or offering 
is uh, because you're having obstacles, because you're having pain, you're having imbalances in the winds and the channels which are causing health problems. So, so there is this understanding. Um, and in terms of magical uses, we really need to appreciate the extent to which Victorian sex magic traditions are so much in conversation, have so much awareness of some vague Asian traditions, but really are also their own thing. And there's a lot of muddling between the two. But really sex magic, as taught by key Victorian figures, works on very different sort of premises to a large extent. There is, so, so there, are, there are overlaps and convergences. There is the idea that, um, uh, having avoiding ejaculation in order to engage in heightened extended sex can induce expanded altered states of consciousness gnosis which becomes a basis for uh, fueling magical acts uh, accessing states of consciousness to engage with spiritual powers and so on but very much so, there's an emphasis also on eventual ejaculation and, like I said, use of those substances as kind of a consecrating substances to anoint talismans. Uh, you know, we do see some examples of, of sexual fluid offerings to non-human entities, for better and for worse. Uh, we see this too as David Gordon White has written about extensively in very ancient strata of uh, tantric and pre-tantric practice in India. Um, but really the, the idea in a lot of sex magic, and again, sex magic isn't just one thing, is that the, the moment of orgasm and the act of sexual congress is a kind of uh, and there's a new book coming out, I forget the author, I'm, I'm very interested to read it, that tries to trace much older Kabbalistic uh, influences for Victorian sex magic, which I think has been long overdue, because it seems to sort of emerge out of nowhere, <laughs> but it clearly doesn't emerge out of nowhere. These traditions have their own mythic histories. Many of these key figures claim some inspiration from oriental sources. Uh, but we know there were kind of tendencies and patterns and practices within uh, Western esotericism, occultism writ large, but that still needs to be traced out much more. Uh, but there is this idea in sex magic of kind of that this is a divine act, that you are re-embodying the the, the divine creative process that you are aligning yourself with um, uh, divine principles. There's a lot of focus on a, a kind of gendered polarity that we really don't see as I discussed in our last, at the end of our last uh, podcast uh, talk, you really don't see as much in the classical tantric, this sort of cosmologizing, gendered cosmology and People will say, oh, what about uh, Shiva and Shakti? But you know, these don't really represent a kind of divinized human gender in the same sort of way. The sort of cosmologizing of gender, gender categories, even the idea that the substances are, 
are polarized in the yogic body is not quite the same as this notion. Um, and I really think that perhaps the origin is more in, in Kabbalistic esotericism and mysticism, because there we really do see, um, we really do see a way of describing God's transcendence and God's imminence engaging together as sort of lovers and then embodied in the in the marital bed by Orthodox Jews engaging in the sort of uh, the the commandment to to have children. So I don't know. I'm just I really it's not my area of expertise. Uh, but in the Yutok Nyentek, we don't see anything like this. Orgasm can be used for practical sorcery that any sex will do alone with people who know you're practicing it, with people who do, um, people who trained or not trained. It's just if I can just get aroused enough and have a good enough orgasm, I can fire off my sigils or my spells. There really isn't anything like this. And I would say a big reason for that is because all of the yogas, all of the six yogas in the Vajrayana context, all of them will give rise to Siddhi. All of them, if practiced appropriately, whatever they may be, by uh, allowing you to, to rest in your basic nature, will give rise to Siddhi. And they also have applications. So I have seen and looked a bit at certain like, for example, there's a very interesting text I translated for a friend. Um, it's a Tumo Yoga text, which assumes then that the, that the reader of the text is already very trained in Tumo. And it explains how to apply the breathing and, and heat generation and visualization methods of general Tumo training as part of a letzok. In one of our previous discussions, I spoke about Letzok as this genre of the Tibetan text that's kind of, now you've mastered the deity yoga practices, how do you apply those creation stage practices to specific worldly aims, like, you know, for increasing wealth or manipulating the weather or, you know, thwarting an enemy or bringing lovers together, whatever it may be. Uh, this is an interesting text because it's kind of a completion stage version of that. It's still deity yoga because it's tumul, but it's saying, you know, knowing these methods, these sort of very internal, uh, personal yogic body methods, here's small ways how you can sort of apply them to practical everyday magical needs. Um, and it describes how to, how to use your, your yogic training um, and sort of fold that into things that we associate with magical, practical magic all over the world. Um, you know, collecting and arranging materia, physical substances, you know, external physical substances, ritual objects, aligning the breath, imagination, and using the Tumohit. It's kind of clearly a book that was written by someone who, who was trained in yoga, because we always hear about, oh, tantric yogis, they have all these abilities, you know, they, they have Siddhi, but we don't know, there isn't always a kind of explicit explanation of, okay, now you know the mechanisms of Tumo. And I think my guess, this is totally a guess, unsubstantiated by any research, but my guess is that a lot of these Letzok, they just come 
from the spontaneous experience of practitioners. Because very often when you're doing tantric yoga, it's like things click inside and the inner reflects the outer. That's the whole point. And the, sort of the magical capacity happens from the inside out. And then subsequently a practitioner might, might instruct another person, oh, here's some additional supplementary things you could do to align the tendril for this. Um, you know, mudras, mantras, visualizations, substances, uh, cycles of breathing. But I think what's quite interesting is that, yeah, I think also people very trained in deity yoga, after a while, you know, obstacles come up in their practices and their dreams. And then as the deity, they find themselves engaging and uttering a mantra or doing a gesture. And, you know, I think this is how a lot of tantric yoga works. You know, when, when a mudra is taught, when a mantra heard by a great practitioner is taught or a prayer or a visualization sequence, it's like we're trying to reverse engineer something that naturally unfolded for this great practitioner. They were resting in the nature of their being and their, their energy shifted and they were healed. And then subsequently they might say, okay, here's a method where you can sort of induce that shift. It's like, you know, mudras, I think uh, Christopher Wallace was talking about this uh, in one of his classes a while ago in a very nice way in the Shaiva Tantra context, but mudras in the context of physical hand gestures that correlate with more internal subtle orientations or mental states. You know, these mudras, the idea is that they emerge through the context of visionary ecstasy or deep samadhi. So someone, you know, much more trained than you or I entered a state in which as their energy moved, they danced or they sang or they held their hand a certain way or they their face or gaze changed. Now we get the instructions that say, sit like this, look like this, breathe like this. But it's like we're reverse engineering um, in the hope that we can snap back into that space. And so you sometimes see Tibetan texts talking about this reverse engineering kind of process in a way maybe more similar to you know, Western sex magic, we could argue saying like, here's the ritual format and then you have sex in this way. And then at this point in the process, you visualize this or, but I think a lot of, of Vajrayana practice starts with the individual body. Um, you know, this is something I've also noticed in reading the kind of yogic studies literature and comparing a lot of scholars are now trying to characterize you characterize and categorize different types of uh, Hatha Yoga texts or and say, look, with this set of practices where everything is interiorized and where everything, um, where there's no reference to an external sex partner or external ritual, this method was the purview of a, of a community of completely ascetic yogis who were positioning themselves against Householder yogis who were still engaging in practice, and what's so interesting about the Tibetan context is that it's it's got it all um, across history and across time, often overlapping and simultaneously. You know, like I said, tumo and the trukor, the dynamic 
hatha yoga type aggressive exercises that that facilitate that training you know those are straight you know historically and just sort of in terms of content straight out of that hatha yoga context that jim mouse Manson is studying right now, um, which he says is, you know, something for presumably for entirely ascetic practitioners. And so we see Tibetan yogis going into retreat and being celibate and women not even being able to come near them and they're in retreat doing tumma and so on. Um, and uh, engaging with, uh, you know, the, the vital sexual energy in particular sorts of ways. But then we also see them potentially going on to practice a celibate form of karma mudra with a jnana mudra, with a visualized consort, who in some cases, like in Lelong's case, that visualized consort wasn't just him visualizing a yidam. It was a deity who came to him in visions and dreams and insisted that he have sex with her. Um, and who then became his teaching dakini and who then possessed his physical partner on regular occasions in the context of sex. So, so we see this overlapping of all these different genres or levels of practice and training. And, and sometimes they're all in the same text, you know, like Yutok teaches as part of his karma mudra training for people who haven't, he teaches a method for those who've already learned his tumo training. And then he explains how to do vadroli type practices and how and how to practice with a partner immediately then he says and for those of you who have no facility or familiarity with salung trukur with the winds and channels uh, hatha yoga type practices then use this other preparatory training method which is a gentle method using the breath and working with the white and the red uh, parts of the bindu of the of the tegle and gaining a kind of control over that and over orgasmic response. Then he says practice with a jnana mudra using the similar internal yogic methods to tumo. So this kind of blazing and dripping, some of uh, listeners will know about this procedure, this kind of distillation that happens in tumo. Um, and then once you're trained with the jnana mudra at various levels, then you move to a to training with a physical partner. The text is quite interesting because it actually describes training first with a with a postmenopausal woman, um, and so one can only wonder why it says that. I have two theories. One is that um, uh, in 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 the kula in the community of initiates. If, if one is engaging in partnered practice, historically, and still to this day in India where Kundalini Yoga and sexual yogas are practiced, gurus will suggest a consort for a practitioner based on the, the partner's expertise. And the, we, you know, we imagine their capacity to, to hold space for that kind of training. Without historically, they were probably not the existing partner of the initiate. And still to this day um, in India, they are not. They're often, you know, often partners are, are low caste and these sexual relations may happen in secret. 
There may also be third gender. There's a lot of things that happen in the context of different tantric lineages like this. But it stands to reason that if one was trying to learn a complicated sexual technique with a, what is essentially a sex surrogate, um, and I write my dissertation about how curiously an American sex surrogate and sex therapist unknowingly got pulled into kind of tantric politics in Dharamsala, not having ever gone there, but by having written a book about how men can control the ejaculatory reflex to have better sex, which then got translated into Tibetan by some friends of mine because of the sense that ordinary Tibetans lacked that kind of sexual education and needed it. Anyway, um, if you're practicing with a sex surrogate, uh, it would stand to reason that that surrogate should be older and more experienced. My guess too, is that if you don't have a handle on non-ejaculatory sex, it's a, gonna be a real problem. Conception is gonna be a real problem. Um, of course, there are contraceptive medicines uh, in the 12th century Tibet, but I'm not sure how, how foolproof they were. And then subsequently, Yutok says, then you practice with your partner who, um, uh, you know, is your partner that you have, you know, a special connection with and who's equally trained to you, who knows what the practice is. There's absolutely no obfuscation. There's no manipulation. It's so interesting that this seems to be the narrative. I have yet to come across any text that I've seen on sexual yoga practice in Tibetan from any time period, which says that the ideal consort should, you know, Lelong himself lists the usual statements about the ideal partner for sexual practice. And, and, and usually he, he's talking to a group of women in this particular text. So he actually says what the ideal male partner should be like too, which is interesting. You don't often see that. Um, but he says, look, I've said all this blah, blah, blah. But the ultimate point is that this practitioner should be a devout, sincere, educated, and committed practitioner of Adriana. They should be initiated, they should keep their vows, they should have faith, and they should maintain good social relations, and they should know how to do the practice, and they should believe in it. And I mean, I've, yeah, so anyway, that's a, that's a bit of a digression. But of course, today, Today, we do and we don't see anything like this. That's a whole other conversation. I'm talking about text emerging in a context where we had whole sanghas, whole communities of non-celibate tantric practitioners frequently living together, sharing resources, you know, living in encampments, following a guru, uh, a tertan, uh, actualizing the, the revealed teachings and instructions the guru, you know, th there was a known body of initiates in this way who had intensive training, um, maybe multi-generational training. And it's the same in the Indian context. Occasionally we hear uh, contemporary stories about gurus uh, um, matchmaking, <laughs> non-celibate uh, practitioners and students. Um, whether that matchmaking is some you know, Gnostic uh, informs, Gnosis informed aligning of tendril and karma, or just more simply saying, 
hey, we're part of the same community, perhaps you will like one another like all communities do, I don't know. But um, certainly, I don't know, we can, it's a whole other discussion to talk about the trafficking in, in partners with expertise because they're rare, even in a society where these practices are valued and, and invested in. So Sarah Jacoby has written excellently about the complexities of the position of Sarah Kundra, great female treasure revealer and uh, uh, karma mudra master, who does a fair bit of moving around and is passed around, we could say, to different you know, high-powered men. And Sarah in her book does not shy away from that. But she also doesn't shy away from the fact that when Sarah Kundra becomes ill, uh, she quite matter-of-factly says she sought out a particular partner to engage with and was able to heal her. I think she had gout or arthritis in her leg. Um, and, you know, she also talks very much from her female perspective. So we have such a lack Unfortunately, we, we own, you know, we're in a terrible situation where we have a preponderance of insights from mostly women, but not only women, students who, who have been abused and disenfranchised as a result of these ideas and these experiences, and just a paucity of, of reflections from empowered uh, practitioners who felt that the practice was empowering for them either as a solo practice or as a as a partner practice and that's just the nature of the texts and the traditions and the society uh, and societies that we're studying or that we're in um, but yeah so <laughs> I think back to the question about magic all of tantric yoga is going to be about developing the inside, your insight, <laughs> your own mind. And that is the source of all Siddhi. You know, Buddhism is filled with magic, which is not tantric, has nothing to do with non-dual tantra, even though it's been incorporated into non-dual tantra, classic methods of magic, using mantra, using visualization, summoning spirits, using materia, these things are often called tantric, but it's more like they're pre-tantric. They exist in sutric Theravadan Buddhism, and they've just been incorporated into the wider kind of view of non-dual tantra. And that's why it's interesting to see someone like Yutok sort of scolding young male Ngapa. He says, I see all of you rushing around trying to manipulate partners and hook them to you using powerful magic methods because you think you need this partner to practice with and so you can actualize this realization of power but you're making a laughing stock of yourself because you don't have control of your kleshas <laughs> let alone control of your subtle inner energies if you did you'd have no worry about attracting partners to you because that process would be unfold effortlessly as needed or not needed. So yeah, it's an interesting thing. Magic often comes up in the context of sex sexual yoga, not just historically, not just as a, as a method of, uh, not just as sexual yoga as having sort of magical power. Um, and we do see this in some of the old 
Indian texts. So Shaman Hatley, who's doing great textual work on some of the earlier and pre-tantric, proto-tantric, uh, those ecstatic charnel ground, uh, uh, flesh-eating yogini, dakini practices I mentioned before, he's written a nice paper on this uh, vrata, this observance called the, um, the razor's edge or the sword's edge, um, which seems to be an early example of using coitus reservatus, edging basically, um, a kind of karetsa technique um, in the Indian context, specifically for magical purposes, for worldly magical purposes. There's no mention of liberation or anything like that. So, so there is that, but actually one place where we often hear about magic in, in relation to, to sexual meditation and yoga is in terms of sorcery in this whole um, kind of uh, fair and unfair characterization of yogis and especially tantric yogis as dubious necromancers who are probably going to use black magic to lure a woman to them so as to non-consensually use them in the context of sexual rights. So the magic becomes associated, it's not the practice itself, unless you want to say that, you know, spiritual realization is magic. Um, I mean, these are all just arbitrary categories we're making. But yeah, I mean, it would be a lie to say that Tantric scriptures, Vajrayana scriptures don't regularly have a sort of appendices where they say, and here's some methods if you need to get a partner, you do this spell and you can get a partner. And you can understand, you can understand it. I mean, it's gross and it's 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 ripe, it, it reveals all the ugly fault lines of gender and power and all these things. Um, you know, we never see it from, from a different side, from a queer side. We never see a record from a, a female side. Here's a spell to get a man. Uh, Lelong hints at that. Lelong kind of suggests that. He gives a, a, a prayer of, uh, he gives his students a, uh, a suddep, like a, um, what, uh, I can't remember the word, uh, uh, a supplication prayer. Um, to pray to to master the practice, and it, it's saying like, please, all Buddhas, may may I line with just the right partner. Please bring the right partner to. It's not a coercive magical rite. It's an aspiration prayer, uh, a supplication prayer, and um, and it's also a teaching because in the prayer it teaches what the point of the practice is and the state you know, that you should have your mind, energy, and body in, and so on. So it's an inspiring practice. It's actually is the, you're doing the practice while praying to be able to do the practice, kind of. But um, Like the uh, secret. <laughs> I don't know if I, yeah, I mean, all, all I mean by that is that it's not the practice, but if you pray the prayer and you understand the practice and you're working on the practice, it becomes the practice too. Uh, but yeah, he has one for men and women. And uh, you could say that's a kind of magic prayer and invocation. It's not one of these aggressive kind of very utilitarian things that you see in other contexts. Uh, 
And I prefer to return to the oral instructions that people like Lelung and Yutok have given, where he said, if you, if you take those instructions or recommendations too seriously or fixate on them, you end up becoming a fool. You make a fool of yourself because you, you miss the point of all these practices. You don't need a partner ultimately. This is something, there's a sort of a debate in Tibetan history about is a action seal, is a karma mudra really necessary to master the full scope of the practice? But really at the end of the day, most people today, especially with the developments in Dzogchen and practices that don't rely on um, sort of completion stage requirements and technicalities, with the with the development of Dzogchen, it's very much the idea across the schools of most schools of Tibetan Buddhism that this is one path that might work for some people in some forms. It's a demanding path, not for everybody, but you really don't need a partner. Um, and if you're becoming anxious and fixated and creepy about <laughs> about about that, you should probably check yourself and revisit the tradition. That's wonderful, Ben. Thank you so much for all these fascinating insights. And uh, I will indeed reach out to Ruth Westerby on your recommendation to talk about her work from the women's point of view. I think there's perhaps a, a genre of uh, to, waiting to be written of female yogis or yogis who are not heterosexual, for example. I think that would be very interesting. We have, in fact, I believe, talked in a previous interviews a little bit about karma mudra from the point of view outside of the heterosexual context. We have discussed that. I don't know if you have anything you want to add to what we've said before in previous interviews about that, or indeed any closing words on the topic as we come to an end. I don't think I have much to add based on the verbiage from before. I will say though that, you know, we all have a, you know, all of us humans engaging and interacting here and now, we all have a human body. We we were all able to be successfully born. And, you know, we have different challenges. I have cerebral palsy. <laughs> um, I, I could arguably fall into the category of someone with bad channels, as, as some of these texts describe. Um, and certain physical yoga exercises are probably going to not be my forte or not be accessible to me, but Others, other forms of yoga and other forms of dharma are. There are 84,000 plus teachings uh, of, of the dharma for 84,000 plus people and mentalities and needs. And I don't see, some people have a knee-jerk reaction because of lack of familiarity. How could there be a queer Vajrayana practice? Or how could there be a, a, a practice that focuses on on transgender individuals or, 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 or women or that's feminist in orientation. But to me, that just goes against the, the whole fundamental truth of the 84,000 teachings for 84,000 people. Um, people get very outraged when they discover that other people are relating through different karma and through different mentalities to the Buddhist teachings in a way that maybe rubs against their sense of how, how these things work. I'm sensitive to that, to that, but at the same time, I think to, to become sort of stridently hostile towards 
efforts by practitioners today to talk about these things and reorient things a little bit, it seems to me to go against the nature of how tantric yogic practice works. We start with our body as it exists. We, we go al along the grain of our propensities and we transform them and we're, we're freed from them. But that doesn't mean we have to be free from them now and we're fixating on being queer or being a woman because Buddhism says you shouldn't fixate on categories. Tundra yoga says we should, you know, it, to me, I, again, I come back to the sort of less charged example of dream yoga. It would seem kind of bizarre if someone said, you're doing dream yoga and you're having ordinary dreams where you're not lucid and you're engaging with them. Don't you know that they're not really real? They're just projections and illusions. Don't you know that as Buddhists, we're meant to exist in a space of non-duality. We're meant to go beyond categories. We're meant to, to be beyond such things. And you talking about your dreams, this is actually anti-Buddhist. You know, because this is how people talk about queer people, you know, African-American Sangha, about, about uh, you know, feminist activism and Buddhism. They say that this is an anti-Buddhism, that it's going against the grain of the tradition itself. And I can never quite understand that. I think it's just a sort of a position that people have been forced into because of how internet algorithms have polarized thinking around identity politics. If you really just charitably look with an open mind to how tantric yogic texts have this flexibility, this way of meeting the student at where they're at and teaching according to their capacity, I don't see what the, what the big deal is about. I see colleagues of mine who are writing about or are involved in, you know, queer Buddhist Sangha, Black Sangha, um, talking about white supremacy. I see about, you know, misogyny and patriarchy and abuse of women. I see the reactions from serious Buddhist practitioners that this is so fundamentally dangerous and against the spirit of, of Dharma. And I'm, I'm just left confused about how that could be so. Because anyone who has learned tantric yoga directly closely from a teacher and has seen how that teacher might draw on textual injunctions or precedents, but also pay attention to the unique needs and bodies of the student um, and progress of the student, um, you know, shouldn't really get hung up on, you know, orthodoxy, uh, especially when we're talking about, like I said, these, these embodied practices. Uh, there, there is a there is a way for everyone, and we start with, with, uh, with what we have. You know, it's it's true to go back to the dream yoga uh, example. Yes, in the context of tantric lucid dream cultivation, one is discouraged from over investing in dream analysis. Dreams are only really useful insofar as they can be worked with and transformed and become a means to realize uh, the nature of, of mind and reality. It, so you don't have a preference for a good dream or a bad dream. In fact, many dream yoga practices 
are designed to induce nightmares on purpose um, because they're, they're good to work with for triggering lucidity and so on. Um, so yes, I get where some critics are coming from when they say, uh, you know, this, this identity politics is it's against the spirit of Buddhism because it's an, it's an investment in, in a notion of yourself you're meant to be getting beyond. But Tantra says, you know, you, in, you, you engage with, with the sensory forms of embodied experience. Uh, and you have to do that honestly. You know, as Dr. Nidhoffen says, what would be the point of me, for example, out of some, you know, slavish dedication to orthodoxy, suddenly heterosexualizing my imagination when I practice uh, engaging with stimulating imagery, uh, which is just a mechanism of the sadhana. It doesn't make sense. Why would I do that? It, it's, it's as sensical as a, as a straight male Buddhist being made to homoeroticize, <laughs> you know, imagery, which is really there as a means. It's it's to it's to uh, induce uh, to 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 stimulate certain capacities and impulses in us, which we can then work with uh, in the context of meditation. As you say that, it's so fascinating. It brings to mind the practices of, say, Vajrayogini, or some of the other practices which would be performed also by men, imagining themselves yes. as, say, female, so to say, yadam. Or in a yes. female form, at least, that would be perhaps wrong to say female yet, in a female form. Um, yes, so, so there can been, be a bit of gender swapping that, that goes on. There have thousands, yeah, thousands of um, <clears throat> highly regarded practitioners throughout the centuries who were born male-bodied, who imagined themselves as quote-unquote female yidam. The yidam doesn't have organs. <laughs> the yidam is made of light. It's what I said in the previous discussion, you know, the, the yidam emerges from seed syllable and from emptiness and dissolves right back into it. This, this trundu, this, this, this mechanism in tantric yogic sadhana of radiating out form and light and dissolving and condensing it back in and then dissolving into emptiness, this is fundamental to how we, again, my favorite term, hack, how we how we play with our own innate capacity to subjectively project dualistic experience and then have it constantly fold in on itself during these peak natural experiences like sleep, orgasm, dreaming, and so on. And tantric yoga is saying, go inside open-heartedly without fear, go inside. I'm pretty sure some of the people object. It sounds maybe simplistic, but I, I'm pretty sure like all of us, some of the people having strong, aggressive reactions to the notion of a, of a, of a black Buddhism or a queer Buddhism, maybe <laughs> it could be good to, to look and see what exists inside them that doesn't feel comfortable to engage with, to, to engage with fully, open-heartedly and fearlessly and dissolve. It's like, just because we're working with our particular karma and positionality as practitioners, honestly, I just, 
it's sad to me that there's so much pushback just against people trying to make the practice real and work for them. You know, what would, what would the infinite bodhisattvas and Buddhas want? Would they want people alienated from practice by angry orthodoxy that's largely made up in the moment of the re re reactive exchange a lot of the time? Uh, or concretized in the moment of the reactive exchange. It's not really a product of like a fair representation of history. Like you could never do it this way, you know. Um, Karma Mudra is only about this and so on. Um, you know, would we want people alienated from, from feeling their way into practice and making themselves better people, you know, uh, transforming their clashes, becoming more at peace, having more agency and control, mastery over their mind and how they relate to people and being, would, would we want them pushed away from that? Or, you, you know, I guess on the other side, people are saying that minorities who are reorienting things are pushing them away. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's a tricky conversation, but it doesn't have to be about politics. It just has to be about, but it, it can and should be about politics at times, but it can also be about practice. In our bodies. That's something that is real. Yutok himself in the 12th century knew it was real. He said, I know that not every practitioner's desire, subjectivity, and physical body is going to be equivalent. And that is why I am saying that some people can do this practice. And for those who can't do it because of accidents of their birth or their particular orientations or their state of being or constitution in a particular point in their life, do something else. And the idea that someone could, could get angry that someone is doing something else that works for them in terms of Dharma practice, that seems like a level of gatekeeping that feels very lonely and sad to me. It's like, why wouldn't you want more people to, you know, joining in? And there has to be, there have to be standards. This is not about anyone doing anything they like. But the people I'm talking about who are making statements, such as the scholars and activists, are not random people on Tumblr who just or TikTok who learned what Buddhism was last week. These are dedicated scholars who are speaking from their own experience and expertise, or practitioners or activists with a lot of experience and. Um, I think because things get so ugly online um, and people get positioned as like peddling a kind of post-traditional, I don't like these terms, post-traditional, modern. I think we've discussed this a little bit. I don't like them because if they, if they aren't sort of marinated in, in a kind of glib superiority about knowing which parts of the practice are important when and for whom, you know, and which ones matter, then, then they often discourage people and they, they make people feel like they're, they have to commit to some camp, you know, like either you're a traditionalist and you're, 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 you're doing everything by the book, you're trying to be a Tibetan in body, speech and mind, even though Tibetans don't, aren't living the way you're living. And Tibetans are diverse people. Some of them are not Buddhists, could you imagine? Um, you know, and so uh, it's just this weird thing that then, pe then people get categorized now. Oh, you're involved with a group of people who are 
doing this radical queer Buddhism. And it's like, I wish that it could just be Buddhism for, for whoever needs it, however they need it. This is what, uh, what Buddhas, fully enlightened Buddhas are said to do. So whatever you, you need, whoever needs it will be tamed in the way, taught in the way that they need. Uh, you might not agree with someone's, you know, approach, but I think it can exist, you know. Like, I'm not out here to radically queer, queerize Vajrayana because I'm queer. I'm just here to practice Vajrayana as a queer person. That's the only way I can do it. Um, I can't do it any other way. So that's the only way I can talk about it when it comes to my personal practice. Um, and for me to pretend like me being queer or disabled is somehow some abstract invented mental category that I should never speak of as part of practice because it's just a projection. That's spiritual bypassing. That's not honestly sitting and, you know, relating to your embodied experience, which is so much about what Tantra is. So, so I'll, I'll end, I'll end there. That's my rant. Yeah. Wonderful. Sometimes I think about going into a clothes shop, you know, you go into a clothes shop, you don't expect all the garments to fit you. There are mm. sometimes one size fits all garments. They have that, but they look different on each body and sometimes don't fit the extremes. For instance, I have an enormous head. My head circumference is XXL. It's true. This is actually true. Yeah. And, and the so, beard is just expanding it. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. So when I wear a hat, for example, well, one size fits all hat is it doesn't fit me. You know, I need an XXL hat, you know, big, uh, I have a huge cranium, nothing much in it, but uh, it's big anyway, May, probably mostly armoring. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but then also, of course, there are clothes of many different sizes and they would fit you more or less accurately or more or less uh, appropriately, let's say, depending on your body type. But of course, if you want the best uh, fit of clothing, you have to uh, have it tailor made by a master tailor. And I yes. think there's some analogous uh, value that can be drawn, I think, from that kind of a way of thinking about spiritual practices. Once again, it's, it's, it's much less charged. You wouldn't very well walk into a shop and demand that every size that didn't fit you was removed from sight. Um, mm -hmm. or, or was banished, exactly. for example. One has to, when walking yeah, into yeah. a clothing shop, coexist with all the other 84,000 sizes that fit those other people. And you might also body. think that some of the fashions too, some of the embellishments in these practices are hideous and you would never be caught dead wearing that. That's right. And that's okay. There are forms of, of, uh, of uh, tantric practice in India and Tibet which are grisly and gross and demanding and some people, some people are, into are into that some people need to be less into that some people need to you know if you're a necromancer you can do the most necromantic <laughs> non-dual tantric sadhana to aid beings and cultivate compassion that you want if if you're not you you can do something else it's just it it seems quite simple to me and the more i learn about these things it's like, I think there's a hubris also in knowing what exists or what was done before. The more scholarship and historical investigation we do, the number one experience that, you know, other academics tend to have when they study these techniques and try to categorize them and map them is there was so much more and our categories are so provisional and 
And I don't know one scholar looking into these sorts of practices who hasn't just been sort of overwhelmed by the, the complexity and diversity of practices. And, and it's possible that, it, that there may be no other way, you know, that all we're really seeing, we're, we, we have a tendency in, in these domains to mistake the uh, prescriptive for the descriptive. So, you know, a lot of scholars now have written about chakras and, and the way that they, in Western esotericism, they've become so descriptive, almost objective. People will tell you there are this many chakras, they correlate with this tone of the pentatonic scale, whatever, they, this metal, this planet has always been this way. You can't change it because you'd be changing the universe. <laughs> and maybe that's true in the context of, of the closed circle of a particular sadhana and a particular moment in the practice of the sadhana. But the way in which, you know, uh, we, even within one lineage, you might be told, okay, try this. You know, Yutok often says like, Here's a method you can use to induce lucidity in your dreams. Try this for this amount of time. If that doesn't work, there's probably these reasons why it doesn't work. Um, so amend, you know, tweak your practice. Maybe you're not praying hard enough. Maybe your visualization is not clear. Maybe you're too sleepy. Then he says, okay, if you've tried all that, then do, do another one. Do something else. He gives a completely different set of visualizations and chakra engagements. What happened to the last chakra? Did it stop existing? Well, yes and no, you know? And so we tend to look at a text and especially a tradition that we've become very attached to and, and mistake the prescriptive for the descriptive. And it's just, it's, it's when it comes to people's personal practice, we can only prescribe the, me the medicine that's good for them. Um, and if we then try to explain and describe orthodoxy, like I said, we start saying we'll only ever give someone paracetamol because they have a fever. Whereas we know in some cases, if you give someone paracetamol for a fever, it could be very bad. So you have to, you have to remember that the Buddha is a doctor and a tailor, not whatever other kind of person does the things I've been, I've been describing, you know, categorically defines the rules for everybody. A dictator, maybe? I don't know. I think he's a tailor and a doctor rather than a dictator, but what do I know? So one interesting thing that we didn't uh, talk about yet is in this comparative research with, uh, you know, when I peek over the wall at what's happening in yoga studies, Indian yoga studies, and then in Vajrayana, and the sort of lay of that land, the, the material that people are working on, and their priorities are different. But it's always, I don't read Sanskrit, I don't really know anything about Indian history in any great detail. It's always great to talk to colleagues across the way. One thing I've noticed is that uh, terminology can, can sort of obscure parallels and in the work of translation that Tibetans themselves did. So only now in the last like 10 years, there were some lamas and students talking about 
Trokor as Hatha Yoga. Um, but I think only now that we know more about the history of Hatha Yoga, Hatha Yoga, we're understanding just how much that is the case. You know, with Jim doing his research and saying Vajrayana Buddhists in sort of first formalized and systematized that vocabulary of cross-sectarian, cross-denomination uh, uh, Hatha Yoga techniques. But then we also miss certain things too, like uh, Tibetans have Vajroli Mudra, uh, but they don't call it that. Um, they just call it by a very, you know, Jim has noted that Vajroli is an interesting word because it has Vajra in it. And its etymology appears to mean the method of those of the Vajra lineage. So it's literally saying the mudra that is specifically used by Vajrayana Buddhists. Um, but then when those methods come to, to Tibet, there's no alternative community of non-Vajrayana yogis. So the term isn't marked in the same way. So when you, you know, you could sort of do a back translation into Tibetan of Vajrali Mudra and you wouldn't find it in any, any texts. And so you might think, oh, well, you do an online search of a database and you think, oh, and don't talk about this practice. But it's just named by very simple descriptive terms. It's referred to as Turma practice. Turma is a multivalent term. It means any kind of tube that's um, hollow. So it's also the word used to describe acupuncture, traditional acupuncture in, in uh, Tibetan medicine. Turche means uh, treatment with a turma. It's also the word for a spoon. Um, so you can always tell if someone's a very bad Tibetan translator, if they are reading a medical text and they translate turche, which means treatment by acupuncture needles, which originally were quite thick and hollow. Um, if they translate that as spoon therapy because of this process that's happened where like chopsticks become a spoon and then, you know, but tur turma basically means any, any tube that's hollow. In medical terms, it can be a catheter that's stuck into the body. Tibetans have ancient surgical techniques where they remove fluid buildup around the heart with the use of turma, uh, obstructed urine in the bladder and so on. But in the context of yogic training, the sucking practices are facilitated with various kinds of tubes. Um, and Tibetans just refer to these as in terms of where the tube is being placed. So the urethral Vajrali practice is called um, duntur, the, the front tube. That's just how it's referred to. And in the context, yogis know it's the front tube sucking practice. And then there are also anal catheter practices as well. Also ultimately designed to use training of the muscles and of breath retention and visualization with dynamic yogi exercises to redirect the flow of vital force in the body and to join the winds, the lower and the upper winds and maintain the unification of those winds. And so this is basically a kind of kundalini adjacent practice. You know, in the early Shaiva sources, there isn't a single latent force at the base that's pulled up. There are two 
there's an upper and a lower that are brought together. Um, and so the, the, this is somewhat analogous in that it links to sexual yoga, it links to tumor. Uh, but what I really wanted to say was not get into the nitty gritty of the technique, but more highlight that fact that sometimes we miss things very simply because we, we don't really know what, unless we're familiar with the scope of both practices and also just the way that people talk about it in practice. Text may use uh, certain terminology to shorthand obliquely certain practices. And then it might be used, um, you know, like we spoke before about methods of uh, um, delaying or controlling the ejaculatory reflex. I mentioned that they, you know, you can find similar ones in the, um, taught in the pages of like Men's Health magazine. And so Ginnan Chupa, the, the monk, uh, ex-monk uh, author of his own hybrid Kama Shastra, Kama Sutra text, a practitioner of sexual yoga, um, he gives one in the context of his, he says, oh, my Kama Shastra, it's not revealing any tantric secrets but he's giving all kinds of instructions on the nature of reality and the union of bliss and emptiness, which I would consider to be tantric secrets, even though they're self-secret because if you don't realize them experientially, they mean nothing. Um, but he's saying, I'm not giving you the sadhanas, I'm not giving you the techniques, but he does give one technique for when he specifically says, when, you, when he's speaking to men here, he says, when you're having sex, and there's too much uh, pleasure or bliss in the lower parts of your body focused around your genitals. It's very funny how he brings together these sources. He, I don't know where he heard this one. Um, I don't think it's a traditional Tibetan method. I might be wrong. He says, think of arithmetic, do multiplications. <laughs> Which is interesting because people like this is something I've heard people say before. I feel like in England, maybe, you know, people say, just think of the queen or think of something boring. <laughs> he also says, um, look, you know, look at the forehead or between the eyes of your partner, just, you know, mindfully focus. Um, but then he says, I will give you one chokor. And he uses the word chokor. And we often think of trukor as being, today trukor exercises are, are quite widely popularly taught. So um, they're often taught for their benefits for health and for stilling the mind and balancing the energy. But when you look at the Yutak it's extremely clear that the set of uh, of trokor exercises that are taught in the Yutok as its kind of in-house methods. They are explicitly connected to stages of Tomo training and stages of Karma Mudra training and practice. So some of the trokor are preparatory, but the Mushi, the main trokor practices, are all explicitly about controlling the Bindu. Yutok explains how you should imagine the tigle either leaving the body or moving in the body in conjunction with very specific types of breath control and extremely dynamic, aggressive, uh, falling yoga postures, uh, powerful breath retention. 
And some of these methods are, are, are particularly prescribed for when one feels that one is about to experience a dissipation of, like we said, when you're doing these practices, you could think of the grosser level of the tigle, you know, the texts talk about how the tigle radiates through the blood and through every part of the subtle body, how they fill the body and they, they vibrate, they, they sparkle, they twinkle. They, it's this effervescent feeling that is a lot like the feeling of a kind of hormonal charge, you know, and a hormonal rush. I don't know what the medical term is for that, but it's a lot like the feeling of butterflies in your stomach. Nido often compares them you know, the tig he says, your capacity to feel butterflies is your tigle. And wherever there is tigle, there is mind. And wherever there is mind, there is tigle. So a zombie, he often says, zombies don't have tigle and they don't have orgasms. That's his sort of succinct, cute way of kind of explaining that relationship. So, you know, you've got this hormonal sort of distillation and, and steaming of of, of the juice, of the, the blissful juices of being. And there may come a time, even in a solo practice, like I mentioned, where you feel like, well, I'm about to ejaculate. You know, you may, you may climax without ejaculating. A lot of things can happen. What, whether or not you ejaculate actual, you know, Nida has uh, suggested that when I interpret and translate traditional texts that say like tigle zimba, like holding the tigle, uh, retaining the tigle, or tigle chorua chorua, losing the bindu tigle, that we should really relate it to climax. Because some people, everyone's body is different. Some people ejaculate or they climax, and, and there's an intensification of that charge, of that energization. Some people, it's a very particular, and, and on any given day, you can have very different experiences. Um, one type of sex with it, or, or just activity with a different partner can be very energizing, but equally dissipating with or without ejaculation. Um, so there's lots of variables, but these methods are for when, it says, for when you feel that you're gonna lose the tigle. So we shouldn't just understand this as ejaculation, but it does correlate for many men's bodies. So that's that's what I want to. There, there's a correlation, but it's incidental. Um, anyway, this is the method. He says you should um, you should retain your breath, or you should breathe in, and you should you should retain an empty breath. You should suck in. Many people will be familiar with some of these methods. You should suck in the lower part of your abdomen. You should pull up on your uh, perineum and anus, close those. You should roll your eyes up towards the top of your head where the, the white tiglia bindu is. Uh, you can also have your tongue up on the palate. And he talks about this sort of squeezing, pulling technique. This is known in sexual yoga instructions, there, there are four stages of practice that one does with the kind of dis, distillation of one's bliss. The, um, there's a pulling upwards or a reversal, which is for beginner practitioners facilitated by very aggressive hatha yoga techniques. But in other sadhanas, if you have good mental training on nature of the mind, you can do it extremely gently without any physical movement at all. So, 
there's a pulling up and then there's a, a condensing and a holding in various stations in the body, chakras. And then there's, uh, um, there's spreading through the body. Um, pulling up, holding and spreading are the main practices that are done. Sometimes it would just be called, uh, uh, you know, pulling and spreading. Or, but there's always the idea that you you take the energy away, you you reverse its 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 tendency to dissipate outwards, and you you kind of bathe the every level of the being in in that vitality, in that experience, in the intermeshing of emptiness and bless you. Lelong uses a great term repeatedly. He says, you stamp, you stamp everything. And that's what a mudra is, a seal, a stamp. You seal everything with empty bliss. And you get more and more familiar with that process. And so, yeah, I mean, the idea of, I talk about it in the dissertation, the method that's taught by the sex surrogate, <clears throat> the American sex surrogate who wrote this sort of, you know, book on how men could have better sex and please their lovers. Uh, <clears throat> she uh, gives a method which she said she reverse engineered by talking to ordinary guys who had just learned how to have non-ejaculatory sex by accident. Um, and they reverse engineer it and it involves learning how to consciously contract the, the particular musculature um, she calls it the, uh, the PC break, uh, the pubococcygeal muscular, she calls it a break, and she trains men in her clinic to, to consciously engage with this pulling up motion. And she also teaches them gazing mudras. She says, we discovered in our clinic that if men hold their breath and stare either straight ahead with their eyes open or upwards, if they don't close their eyes, something happens to the spread of the sensations that are feeling and that reflex to ejaculate disappears. And so this does raise the question, I had a conversation with um, a colleague of mine, uh, Jeff Kripal, Jeffrey Kripal, who you probably know, um, writes about all kinds of spooky things. And he said to me, when I gave a presentation on you know, popularizing karma mudra teachings at a, as a terrorism conference. He said, you know, what I'm really interested in is that so many people have discovered these techniques by accident, by themselves. There's an amazing book, I believe her name is Jenny Wade. I think that's her name. She did countless interviews with people that she specifically sought out who had no prior training or knowledge of neo-tantra, sex magic, yoga, anything, but who had all just in the course of having sex experienced visions of chakras, of beings, of non-duality, alien abduction, all kinds of experiences. And, and they spoke about spheres of light, things that happened spontaneously and that were very unsettling for them. And they often kept quite secret. And so again, it comes back to that idea of you know, like, is the mudra that you get taught by your teacher, your teachers, is it just to, to get you into a place where something that is innate to the body and to the mind and to reality can happen? 
we're just really trying to show up, <laughs> show up for the experience, like you took said, by aligning yourself, you align the body and realization dawns in the mind. This, he says, this is yoga. Um, so yeah, I'm not surprised that these things exist, reverse engineered in sexology, you know, cl clinics, and, and then popularized in Men's Health magazine, you know, pull, pulling up on the, um, it, this has also been a part of Taoist practice. It's just stripped of the kind of internal alchemical dynamics and visualizations. But the physical gestures, you know, create maybe holding Vajra fist, you know, pulling in the breath and holding the breath. The techniques often, they all sort of amount to a similar, quite like blunt physical process of pulling and then. In Yutok's Trukor, there are specific um, uh, poses, dynamic yoga postures where you you sort of you spread the body out, or you you, you if the also the tigla gets gets stuck, the energy of the tigla gets stuck in the upper or the lower parts of the body. There are ways you can seal parts of the head uh, with a mudra and retain the breath that way. And, and just open up the channels again. Um, because these aggressive Hatha Yoga techniques, they often have um, side effects of, uh, it's called uh, like tzatsuk uh, or tzatsa, like uh, pain in the channels so or channel pain. You do start to get sort of energetic, you know, you need, you need massage, a good diet. Like when you're actively forcefully trying to Re, this is why these practices are prescribed and you know not for everyone because if you don't do them correctly you can can become sick and actually Mipam, Mipam Rinpoche in his Kama Shastra <laughs> so there's this whole Tibetan genre of we're writing about worldly sex it's not a tantric instruction but the only people who are studying worldly sexology in Tibet historically before Ganachipal are karma mudra yogis. So it is a tantric genre. And that's what I argue in my in a chapter in my dissertation. Um, but Mipam specifically says, he says, if if your body isn't, if you aren't good with your body, if you aren't right in your body, if you don't know basic sexual techniques, if you aren't flexible, if you haven't done um, you know, if you aren't well exercised, if you aren't healthy, basically, uh, energetically and physically, if you try to do some of these uh, energy manipulation, circulation techniques um, as, as, a, as a support for your realization, a lot of things can go wrong. He says it will imbalance the, the three humors of Tibetan traditional medicine, the wind, uh, uh, bile and phlegm and cause health problems. And um, so you should make sure that you you actually just have, you should probably have a, a good physical yoga practice and a good worldly sexological knowledge. Also, as Lelung regularly says, he says, you don't know about how to please yourself and your partner. And you don't know these kinds of men's health type things. You you're not going to be able to have a, a good basis from which to empower your meditation. Um, you can't really do 
karma mudra or sexual meditation of any kind as a beginner with bad sex. So this is where like the neo-tantra crowd could be very happy because they could say, oh, all of our sort of what I would consider to be more worldly methods, because often the focus is much more on worldly pleasure and worldly enhancement with a spiritual gloss, um, because there isn't necessarily a kind of lineage-based spiritual, there isn't necessarily Mahamudra, you know, up there waiting, but, you know, who knows? Um, I don't know what's happening in the neo-tantric world so much, but certainly the kinds of enhance your pleasure, know how, be in touch with your body, these are presented as mundra, as preliminary trainings for dedicated sexual yogis and yoginis in the Tibetan context. So we shouldn't dismiss them. It's just if you get lost in those weeds, like I mentioned before, and you forget what the point of all of this is, because it's so immersive, it's so intoxicating, it has to be that you can get lost so easily. You can forget what, you, what you're doing here. You're, you're not trying to have a partner. You're not trying to have an experience because you're trying to experience dakmeba, selflessness. And in Tibetan, the word for self or I also means owner or mastery. You're trying to get to a place through the practice where you no longer own any aspect of your experience. There is no owner. You are beyond the duality of self or other between getting and wanting, having and not having. So um, this is the sort of paradox of these practices. In a way, they require us to, to like dive deep into men's health mentalities, you know, um, to really think about and arguably risk fixating on sex and the body and its cultivation so that we can get somewhere that frees us from all that. And it can work for some of us and it can lead some of us astray. But it, is, it was funny to me in the dissertation that there was, that I, I was like, <laughs> you know, I've read the same technique that Genachupa is saying he's going to teach here as a trokor in initiated tantric texts. And then now I'm seeing the same technique arising kind of seemingly ex nihilo, but our American sexologist said that she recognized that the true authors of these methods were Himalayan yogis in the mists of time. Of course, <laughs> she wasn't saying that she had learned them from them. She just assumed that because obviously that's where tantric stuff ultimately comes from. But it, yeah, it's, it, it goes back to the discussion we were having about how the, if you're serious about working with who you are, where you are in your body, then you have to be honest about what your body is like and what its capacities are. And are you horny? Are you not horny? Do you like to sleep? Do you not like to sleep? Can you remember your dreams? Can you not? Do you have a lot of anger? Do you not have anger? Um, and yeah, so I hope that people won't get lost in the weeds with all this, because I think that was always a danger from the very beginning. Um, the, I think, uh, Jim says that the, I think the Amrita Siddhi, this early kind of uh, text on Vajrayana Hatha Yoga type stuff, pseudo Vajrayana, uh, it says these methods are better than deity yoga. Don't do deity yoga. That's his interpretation of the particular passage. Um, 
And then later on, people say, dead yoga and all this stuff with the Salong Tegle. It's all a distraction. I mean, you know, there's something, there's another way, there's a Dzogchen approach that doesn't require us to engage in that necessarily. But then in Dzogchen, you find so many physical truko. You find sexual yoga, Dzogchen style practices. So once again, it's like, as soon as we try to categorize these things and we say, oh, sexual meditation has nothing to do with worldly sex. Then we go, these great masters said you have to actually be an expert in worldly sex to make it work. And then we go, okay, but it's about Mahamudra. Um, so then we don't need Karma Mudra because we, we just got the Mahamudra techniques. And Dzogchen went beyond, uh, you know, Hatha Yoga stuff. But then you go into the Dzogchen caves uh, and retreat spaces and who's in there? Yogis doing trukor to manipulate their subtle body. So Tibetan, Tibetan history seems to keep challenging us with our desire to compartmentalize and draw neat boundaries between how all these things can and should fit together and whether we should find ourselves, you know, in company with Men's Health magazine or not. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to think about there in the fact that, that those texts are, the Tantric texts and Men's Health magazine occasionally parallel one another. Um, I think we could have a whole different discussion about like the implications of that, like I said, but yeah, uh, that's, to me, it's, it's the same, it's the same mechanism. Uh, all of this, all of these methods of, yeah, pulling up, even pulling out. Leilong even talks about pulling out, when and how you should and shouldn't pull out. And like what the consequences of that are. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it can't help but start sounding like other stuff we've heard that isn't very sacred. Because at the end of the day, sex is not and shouldn't be sacred. We shouldn't make it precious and pedestalize it any more than we pedestalize our capacity to have dreams. And yet our dreams can lead us to realizing the nature of our mind, just like our sexual impulses can. So uh, yeah, if everyone just spoke more transparently about their sexual sexual interests and how they wanted to incorporate those into spirituality without being kind of highfalutin or or precious around it. I think we might just have a healthier conversation, but we already have so much baggage around spirituality and then sex. And then you put them together. It's very hard to even start to have just a basic conversation. Uh, I think what we see in some of these texts, like we discussed before, is they have a kind of almost like shocking for some modern readers, like sort of dismissive, naturalistic, sort of, they're just like, yeah, have sex. Just do, do, do. It's just a natural thing. I don't th think it's, I don't want to romanticize it. I actually think it can be problematic because there's no talk about so many conversations we need to have here about psychology and, you know, consent and partners it's just like here is the method <laughs> i'm sure all this stuff was happening in the past i'm sure these discussions 
and issues will be navigated by living and breathing practitioners, but it's not like we have a record in the same way um, when we just see simple instructions on how to pull out or pull up or hold your breath or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you, that was long, probably use some of that maybe. I did, pro I went longer because I realized I promised earlier to talk about method technique, you know mm. um, no that's wonderful i think i'll use and it's one that's already been shared and everyone already knows so it's not but that that really is they they look a lot like that right? of course it's no surprise really i mean how could they not mm. like how could there be a more spiritual method for it's more spiritual because of how and why it's done not the the mechanics itself like Christopher Wallace, I think I've said this to you, he's always like, oh my God, like he always wants to say Neo-Tantra, whatever Neo-Tantra is doing, it's not classical Shaiva Tantra. And that is usually true. However, it seems that everything Neo-Tantra is doing is being done by Tibetans, almost everything, like just with a very different understanding of why you do it and how you do it. But it's, it's, it's largely the same methods. Um, like uh, it's irritate. I find it irritating <laughs> occasionally because I'm like, it's so similar that it's like, I can see how it's like a near enemy. That's like Christopher's whole thing. It's a near enemy, um, Neo-Tantra and Neo-Tantra practices. But I was gonna say one more thing about uh, Neo-Tantra similarities. Oh yeah. And then even the tradition itself, you know, there are these different categories of yogini or dakini in Vajrayana, not just in terms of their bodies and their suitableness as, as mudras, but in terms of uh, their, the kind of yogini that they are. So, you know, they talk about like the mantra-born yogini who has qualities as a result of practice. You know, this does tie into the notion, the way Tibetans go about talking about some of these uh, natural yoginis does tie, like again, worryingly close to the way that some neo-tantric practitioners sort of select certain women as being, you know, like because of their aura or their pheromones or whatever. Because it, it is, but I mean, the reality is we know that like, I mean, I assume everybody knows this from personal experience. You have sex with someone. And I, when I say sex, I mean, it can be looking across the room. I mean, my, when, what I mean by sex, you know, it's quite broad, not just penetrative sex, but you engage erotically with somebody and you can do exactly what seemed like. I mean, I often have this thought in my like minimal sexual exploits these days where I'm like, Wow, it's like I'm not really doing anything different, ostensibly. You know, like I'm not like trying out some new moves or like, but the same kind of smooshing of lips, the same like physical genre. There's a freshness in, there to it. Yeah, and with one person, it's like you're traveling through the multiverse, and with somebody else, you're like, can I just. just and you know, what is that? It's a mystery. It is a mystery. We sort of know. We say things like hormones, pheromones, genetics. You smell that person's shirt and how genetically close to you. And 
neo-tantric people love this kind of stuff, you know, and it creates the worst takes on earth. Like I've seen some of these terrible posts where people are like, you know, the the womb and the penis, like they're just, they're so heteronormative and they're like, it's biologically, genetically, it's like we have to exchange the DNA and we're vibrating on the same level and like, I see the dangers of that way of thinking and it is very essentializing and, and problematic and pro projecting a lot of cultural assumptions and norms onto a timeless cosmic practice. <laughs> but, but I also see, um, you know, there is something to that. All the texts say you, you can't do karma mudra. Lelong says something interesting. He says first practice, it sort of goes both ways. So in the Yutok we see um, him saying first practice with a senior postmenopausal practitioner and then with your you know partner that you really connect with and who's trained you know equal to you and and then um lelong says to his female students you should practice with your partners and young guys who really turn you on and then later when you're stabilized in the view when you're able to maintain the view of emptiness in the midst of sensory experience after much practice then it won't matter who you engage with sexually i mean he's he's very crude in the text he says even a guy old ugly guy with rotted teeth and rotten breath you you empty blesses he's still yours you know but then he's not saying that that's prescriptive i don't think but you know, he also says, when you really maintain the practice, then it's like that quote from my, my dissertation. He says, here's the, here's the path. Form an emptiness, fuck each other, and have the baby of samsara nirvana. If you understand that, then everything is the uh, the right of, of, of fucking, the, the sexual ritual. Kind of crude way of putting it and then and then everything is karma mudra which again sounds a bit like neo-tantra where they're like everything is whole universe is having sex but again there i mean the interpenetration of form and emptiness is a congress and it's an ecstatic one and it it underlies everything and the whole thing about the jeto in these practices the post meditative practice is that you know like there's this clearly a peak you know of intensified practice and holding off and intensification and circulation but and then there's climax but the practice doesn't stop at climax nida has explained to me that like for some people where the practice really works is actually post ejaculation it works better for some people at that, you know, because a lot of the scriptures say that it's the, the what you're trying to do, like the color chakra, it says you're trying to retain, you're trying to stay in that moment, like the edge of a sneeze. You're trying to stay at the edge of a dick sneeze, basically, to put it bluntly. You're you're holding, purposefully holding the 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 energy just prior to ejaculation, and you're living inside that moment. And that is the space in which desire is consumes itself, um, external desire. So that's the kind of mechanism of 
that's as, it, as it's described in the text. But you know, Lelong also explains that post ejaculation, some people can recognize uh, nature of mind, and that's why all the texts are very clear on that I've seen, and that one must stay with the partner, that there's a sort of protocol, and that. That the, that the after practice is as important as the foreplay and the main practice. It's the same with any sadhana. But Jetop, the after practice is always about bringing the path, bringing the practice onto the path, making it portable. I prefer Nida's translation of, you know, people will say lamla chewa, like bringing onto the path. He says it's a weird way of saying making the practice portable. You carry it with you everywhere. It, it sounds a little like obscure and highfalutin, um, but yeah, you, you if you've stamped, if in the moment of practice you are able to sort of stamp bliss emptiness, then it's easier to continue sort of recalling the view, and it works for anything. What's interesting is that in one of Lelong's texts, his his preliminary practice instructions are not about sex. He actually says practice the view first with all sensual things. So he says, when you put on clothes that you really like, imagine first that they're an offering to the Yidam and, and that they are, are the nature of empty bliss. It's like any Tsok or Gana Chakra, same practice. When you smell something, when you taste something, when you see something that arouses you, any moment of arising in desire, he's, and he says, it will take a long time. To, and he gives some methods to help you. Like if you get very distracted, he says, just stare, do a gazing mudra. And, and, then, and then you just work your way into, into incorporating that into what's probably the highest, the height of sensory overload and kind of blissful for some people. And you just bring it in. Um, and then you bring it out too. <laughs> You bring everything and you out and you stamp it onto everything. So it's also interesting. I think Karma Mudra especially is a very extreme example of integration. Like it confronts us with the challenges of integration because people get very fixated on, I have to find a partner and I have to have the sex and I have to have the peak experience and I have to have the bliss. And then, but it's like with anything, again, lucid dreaming. You, you have a really powerful lucid dream. You know, whenever I am successful, my sleep practice has gone to shit, but whenever I'm su successful in a lucid dream, I always wake up and without even trying, I, I dedicate the merit on waking up. And I say like, you know, I want this to expand. I want, and you do it through the daytime practice too. You do, the, there's a daytime practice of Karma Mudra as well. As Nida says in his kind of, third, fourth language English. It's like, you want to do karma mudra, you have to be sexy. But he, he doesn't mean you have to look hot because that's not how he uses the word sexy in English. He means you have to be sensual. Whenever I dress in, in a way that's sumptuous or has lots of colors, he always says, oh, you look very sexy. Um, he's like, it's good karma mudra practice. And so that's the jetop too. It's like, your 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 vibrating proliferating bindus can't just live inside your body when you have time in between work when you're meditating because they don't live inside your body 
I like your talks tomorrow when he says, you know, start with the central channel and the tigle in your body, and then then it's outside your body. And not all sadhanas sort of emphasize that so specifically. And when you realize that, you become so much more relaxed. Like I had some of our students say, why does the instruction say you have to crook your chin in if the central channel is meant to be straight? I was like, the central channel isn't in your body. It's only nominally in your body when you think of it that way so that you can experience some things and think of it another way. It's like a lot of people are just, I'm like, you don't have organs in your Vajra body. It's made of light that you can mold. It, yeah, it's interesting how people get very, these materializations of things. Um, so yeah, I, I think if we move karma mudra maybe away from partnered sexual practice, you know, appropriate consorts, um, advanced training. Um, and we bring it back to the way that anyone experiencing everyday pleasure can also experience the limitless, empty, ultimate nature of that pleasure. Then they are doing karma mudra. Then, you know, not technically, because they don't have a physical partner, which the term traditionally relates to, but they are they are doing the practice of the union, unification of bliss and emptiness. And that's karma mudra, not the physical partner part. Um, that's sexual yoga. So Nida often says to people who say, oh, I'm, I'm asexual, I don't have a partner. It's like, well, do you like listening to music? Do you like eating chocolate? Um, then you have your, your best partner. And if imagining, it's up to you what Jnana Mudra is going to make you, make the practice work for you. Um, so again, it just, I don't know, I, I think it would be so much nicer if we could have conversations about sexual yoga as a yoga of bliss, of joy, instead of a yoga of sexual activity. I just wonder what it would be like if, if we called these things eroticism and we didn't require some creepy cult leader with a hypnotic aura to de-armor your yoni for you or teach you to unlock your orgasmic potential. And we just, you know, I think I get so many emails uh, which is a whole another interesting discussion from women who've read the Karma Mudra book who are appreciative. And I would say the majority of them are older women, postmenopausal women, who say that as they've gotten older, they've developed a new relationship with their sexuality, separate from men, not requiring male attention or advances, and have often had very erotic experiences by themselves without instruction during meditations that were not billed as erotic and were so appreciative to find some map or context in which they could engage with that or understand that and I really appreciate that I wish we could almost reframe all of this is it is about sex but it's also about it's about intimacy with yourself and with other people on multiple levels 
intimacy with reality because you get as deep as you can into your embodied experiences and you look and you see what's there and then and you don't shy away from it and it's also about a kind of uh yeah a sense a sensuality um that doesn't have to have anything to do with conventional ideas about sex and relationships and gender or anything I don't know if you saw on Facebook, I posted this feminist activist who wants to, to dismantle the capitalist family, but she got into hot water for tweeting about her experience of watching the documentary, My Octopus Teacher, while on LSD. And she wrote about it as an erotic story where the, you know, the main character failed to appreciate the full erotic potential of a cross-special relationship. And everyone's response was, but the guy didn't fuck an octopus. What the hell is wrong with you, deviant? <laughs> but that's what I mean. We're so limited in our imaginations. Um, I just, I think that, that these practices can, can get that tigle buzz through so many, through living, you know, that's the point. Um, and I, I wonder what would happen if we use, if we sort of categorically use different language, if we sort of set ourselves the challenge of not talking about this as being about sex at all. Um, of course, then people would say, but it is about sex. <laughs> so there's no way you can win. Fascinating. Dr. Ben Joffe, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.